This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be eradicated, liquidated, and exterminated by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, March 16th. This is episode number 59. We'd like to thank our three sponsors today, Hover.com, Squarespace.com, and Sourcebits.com. Tell you more about them as the show progresses. Hello, John Syracuse. Hello, Dan Benjamin. Big day for you today, iPad day. Everybody in your family, new iPad arrives today. No new iPads in this house. Yesterday, I got my new Apple TV, though. Oh, cool. So I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about that. Yes, we will talk about that. Excellent. But first, follow up. Okay. Good crop this week. I should have practiced my name pronunciations before the show. The first one, right off the bat, I'm in trouble. Cyril Godefroy? Hope I did a good job. But that has (laughs) pointed me to uh, the ZFS time machine implementation. So it's a bunch of command line scripts that uh, leverage ZFS to do something like what Time Machine does. So you're sending backup from one ZFS pool to another using that incremental uh, block differences that I talked about on one of the past shows and deleting old backups as you go. Uh, so people are building their own Time Machine, Apple, using 10's complement ZFS on macOS 10 and their own meager Perl skills to slap together some scripts to try to do something better than what Apple does with Time Machine. So it's good to see the geeks uh, taking the ball and running with it there. Jonathan Sutter was the first person to write in to tell us that the always show tab bar preference that we were looking for in vain on the last podcast yes. in Safari is actually in the view menu in Safari. That's probably where it always was. I was probably just misremembering it. Maybe it was Firefox that had the always show tab bar checkbox and preferences. But if you go to Safari, the view menu, there is a item called show tab bar. And sure enough, if you activate that on Safari 5.2, one big giant honking tab comes down. <laughs> if, you, if you activate it on Safari 5.1, one small tab comes down. Uh, I still don't know anyone who runs with that on. Like, who wants to see the tab bar all the time? I just want to see it when there's more than one tab. So Maybe uh, the effect is somewhat jarring for people if to see it shift slightly. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea why yeah, anybody would run that. It might change your window size. I don't know. I, I don't know. People have different preferences. But anyway, that's where it is. And it's off by default. I think so. Yes. Justin Scholes says... Sounds like a wonderful vacation place. Justin Scholes. Yeah. Pointed me to a 1080p version of the uh, Apple Keynote podcast stream. Did I talk about this already? My podcast and and tweets are blending together. I'm pretty sure I tweeted about this, but I didn't mention this on the past podcast, right? I don't recall it, but uh, it's probably worth mentioning again because there's a lot of people who would like this. Yeah, so I'm I'm always looking for the uh, the highest quality version of whatever Apple's event video uh, uh, video of whatever event Apple just did. So in this case, it would be the introduction of the new iPad. They had that video event, which we couldn't see live, but we could see the live blogs. And then shortly after the event, Apple puts up video of it. They put it on their website. Uh, but if you want a downloadable copy of it, you can subscribe in iTunes to Apple's podcast feed. Uh, I think it's just called Apple Events, and there are three versions of it. There's the plain one. There's one called HD, and now there's one called 1080p. And the 1080p one has just what it says, a big, gigantic 1080p version. Some people on Twitter are asking me, why Why do I want the 1080p version of this? Why do I want this thing at all? Why do I care about the quality? Didn't I just watch this keynote? 
I like to have sort of backup copies of this stuff because I refer back to them sometimes years later. So I try to save all of the videos of all of the Apple events because say I'm writing something three years from now and I see, hey, well, what did what did they actually say at the iPad introduction? And trying to go by your memory or by Googling for stories on it is difficult. I like to have the original source material there. And why do I need the big, giant, highest quality source material? Like, well, if I'm going to be saving something anyway, why don't I save the highest quality version? You know, because sometimes you want to read something on a screen in a screenshot. Now, at this point, the 1080p may actually be like a stretched version and it was only recorded in 720. It's hard to tell. Like the 1080 does look a little soft in areas. And so it's like, how much more information are you really getting over the regular HD one, which is closer to 720, I think. I just like having the best quality version available. So I figure it can't hurt. And yeah, it's humongous and it's like five gigabytes to download this video. But I've got a lot of hard drive space. And when I run out of space, then I'll worry about it. Uh, but what do we have next? Smoke detector. My smoke detector. <laughs> so the last, last, last podcast, we talked a lot about this talking smoke detector I got and the problems I had with it activating itself, uh, which was eventually tracked to the IR sensor and some possible source of IR. Many people questioned my hypothesis that uh, something in the neighbor's house was triggering it. I don't have proof of that. All I know is there is line of sight right into like a room that I know people are in because I see the lights going on and off. So through glass with no drapes or anything, there is actually a line of sight from the smoke detector to that window. But there are many other sources of IR within the house. Uh, people are saying that fluorescent lights can sometimes give a high IR. So all sorts of things like that. I know it's not in line of sight of any of my television remotes and none of my television remotes are even pointed towards it. Uh, but experimentation determined that yes, really, it really does activate by IR. I can take my own remote, point at the thing and hit it and watch it go on. So I know that does it. And I know it was going on by itself when there was no smoke or CO2 available. So that's the best theory I have. Now, many people uh, wrote in and tweeted and told me, why don't you just tape over the IR sensor? Uh, That's why I would have liked to do that. But the IR sensor is buried deep within this thing and it's got vents and slats all around it. Uh, So since I don't know where the IR is coming from or what it's bouncing off of, I would have to cover all of the vents and slats with tape. And then at that point, I've disabled the smoke detector because I'm pretty sure those vents are important for the smoke to get in to be detected. So I didn't want to mess with it. It's not probably not a good idea to mess with your smoke detector in that way. <laughs> uh, but shortly after the show, Matthew Copsey uh, tweeted to me that uh, he knows how to disable the IR sensor. And he sent me, uh, in the tweet, there's like a, picture of a web forum or something with someone quoting from the user manual. So I looked at my user manual and I said, because I had looked in there, I said, there's got to be a way to disable this IR sensor and I couldn't find it. And then I'm like, maybe I'm just not finding it because my visual grep is not good. You ever ever find yourself staring at a piece of paper and reaching (laughs) for the forward slash key like you're looking at something in less and you want to do a search and you realize, (laughs) oh yeah, there's no search in real life. Uh, So I pulled up a PDF of the manual. By the way, this is one of the great uses of the internet for nerds who may be listening to this and who don't know about this. You can find pretty easily a PDF version of the paper manual for almost any home appliance. You would think, oh, who's going to have a PDF of my uh, of my smoke detector online? That that's you know all you need is like the model number. You just got to write the exact model number, maybe the make, and then manual, and then do in URL colon PDF or just type PDF. You will find, believe it or not, PDF versions of the manual for all your appliances. Almost all of them. I don't know where they come from. I don't know if there's one particular site to look for. Just type it into Google. You'll find it. And sure enough, I found a PDF version of my exact smoke detector. I opened that in preview and did a search and it was, um, it was actual text. It's not one of those PDFs. It's just like a uh, giant TIFF image of the, 
the thing. You've seen those ones. Those you can't search on. But this was actual searchable text. And I searched again for the text that was there. Anything having to do with disable or IR or the exact text within the thing. So I couldn't find it. So somehow I have a, a smoke detector uh, whose manual does not tell you how to disable the IR sensor. But the instructions that uh, Matthew Copsey posted to me actually did work. And so for the people who might happen to have this smoke detector or another one, the secret was take out the batteries. They're in like this sliding battery compartment where you, you snap the things into the battery compartment and then you sort of slide it shut like a drawer. So pull out the little battery drawer, hold down the one button that's on this thing, which is the silence test whatever combination Uber button. Hold down the button and then shove the drawer in while you're holding down the button and it'll make a little chirp like boop. And, and then it doesn't say anything to say IR disabled or anything, but then I tested it by taking my remote and shooting it all over the thing and I could not make it go off. So now the talking smoke detector is in its the place where we plan to put it we have not had any false alarms since last week and i'm pretty confident that this way of disabling the ir sensor actually works so thank you matthew for that and for other people worried about smoking smoke detectors talking smoke detectors there is hope even if you have an ir sensor to safely disable it owen kelly in new zealand wrote to tell me that they have smoke detectors there that allow you to trigger it by shining a strong light at the alarm. As he says, this is crazy making as there doesn't seem to be any predictability about what delta and light level triggers it. It's always a good time when it goes off when half asleep you turn on the bathroom light first thing in the morning. So that's even worse than IR. Something that goes off just from, from shining a light on it. That seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> I don't know if that's like New Zealand mandated or just something someone came up with. Uh, Greg Burns Leone wrote in to give me suggestions on how to solve my issues with the smart cover. I said that if I get a new iPad, which I probably will eventually, uh, I will probably get the smart cover for it. I have complaints about it, but overall I like it. And one of my complaints was that when the smart cover is open, when I flap it around to the back, it doesn't sort of stick to the back that well. And it's like, how do you, what do you do with this thing that's on the back? I said I didn't like folding it up, but when it's flat, the little last, last thing flaps down. It's kind of annoying. So he says, why not just take it off? Take it off entirely when you're not using it. Uh, I have a couple of problems with that. The first one is, where do I put it when I take it off? I don't like, now I have two things that I have to keep track of and remember not to leave behind and just finding some place to set it down. You know, it's just, it's inconvenient. I'm thinking of the, the time when I used the iPad the most was at WWDC last year. I used it like, you know, hours a day, every day. And you just want to have that iPad on your lap and you want to be, I was typing on it, believe it or not, taking notes. And I don't want to have to find somewhere in the little chairs they give you to sit at WWDC sessions to shove my thing. Well, I'll put it back in my backpack, but then I got to take it out of my backpack and put it back on. And slip it on. So I don't want to deal with that. The second problem is that the little hinge thingies, the little magnet hinge thingies that clip onto your iPad, those are made of metal and they have pretty sharp edges. And you have to be pretty careful when you put that on, not to like, you've seen people do it where they, they take off the smart cover, it comes off and they try to put it back on and it flaps onto the screen. Those metal things clack against the Gorilla Glass in the front of your iPad. Maybe they're not going to scratch it, but I know they can scratch the aluminum back on it. And, you know, the aluminum back will so what? Who cares if it's scratched? I, I don't like the idea of those metal things clacking around and I don't have to be so careful to make sure that I, I take it off, peel it off carefully and then put it back on. I don't like that process of taking it off, putting it back on. It makes me uncomfortable to have metal clacking against metal or metal clacking against glass or to have to worry about that. Uh, and then he says, when you're, holding the, uh, when you're using the iPad while holding it in your hand, the smart cover has no purpose and should be removed. I think it does have a purpose. I think the very important purpose, and one of the reasons I like the smart cover, is that when it's flapped around to the back like that, it vastly increases the, the uh, coefficient of friction of the iPad and your leg or whatever thing that you're on. 
Uh, so if you have that smooth aluminum glass back resting on your knees, it's very easy for it to sort of skitter off. Or if you're 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 laying down with your knees up or whatever, it doesn't stay up there. But the microfiber back of that of the smart cover that's normally on the screen is very very grippy. So you put that uh, on any sort of fabric or whatever, it gives sort of a it, it keeps the iPad from sliding around and makes it feel much more secure, especially when you're typing. So you don't, your leg muscles aren't tensed as you're trying to keep this thing poised on your lap. Exactly. The, the friction really helps. Uh, so I'll still be getting a smart cover and I still don't have a great solution for these few annoyances. What I guess the, the best solution would probably be for Apple to put super strong magnets in the back of the iPad to pair up with the ones in the in the cover when it flaps backwards. I mean, they do have magnets there now. It's just that they're not quite up to the task of keeping it stuck, the last, especially that last flap stuck to the thing. Uh, but I'm sure there's not a lot of room to spare on the iPad, and this is probably not high on their list of uh, tweaks to make. The real tweak they should make to that smart cover, I didn't mention this the last time, is that that microfiber stuff that they have inside the screen where you, you, know, you put it on your screen and it cleans your screen automatically, that actually does clean your screen but it only cleans your screen where it makes contact. And since the smart cover is like foldable into origami shapes with the little triangle and stuff, there are thin regions uh, and those thin regions don't touch the screen. So it cleans, the smart cover cleans your screen except for these little stripes. You've probably seen this on your iPad. Anyone who has a smart cover, you can tell just by looking at their iPad because their screen is unevenly clean. It's clean area and then dirty stripe <laughs> and clean area, then dirty stripe and clean area, then dirty stripe. I always thought that the whole cleaning thing was a little bit of propaganda. I, I never feel like it's cleaning the screen at all. Do you have a smart cover yeah, on your iPad? Of course. So t- go grab your iPad, open the smart cover now, and then hold it in the light so you can see, you know, the differences in textures or whatever. You will see that it's clean. It actually is cleaning, or at the very least, it's like like lawn mowing, pushing the blades <laughs> all in one direction in a particular pattern, such that you can see stripes. You can see here's where that big pad where the smart cover pad went down, and here's the joint in the smart cover where it, it hinges. Uh, if you have it readily accessible, take a look now. I think you'll see this. And this is a common thing. When the people first got smart covers, they said, oh, it leaves weird stripes. It does. I guess it's better than not cleaning it at all. Uh, what if you were to slide, instead of most people lift the smart cover off, what if you yeah, were to slide yeah. it across while applying pressure to the bottom yeah, of it? Yeah, I've tried various, as an obsessive compulsive person, I've tried various <laughs> techniques. of like, maybe <laughs> if I just shift it back and forth with my fingers, like back, you don't, you never quite make it all the way to clear off those areas. Uh, I, I also I'm also concerned that like so this microfiber thing is cleaning the screen and this obviously what's on the screen is you know, oils from your fingers and stuff. Well, those oils from your fingers have to go somewhere. The cleaning thing doesn't make it disappear. So that means the oil is going from the screen into the little microfiber cover. <laughs> and long term, I don't like the end game of that that scenario <laughs> where you just have a a finger oil soaked smart cover attached. To, I guess then you just buy a new one for thirty bucks or whatever. Uh-huh. So yes, humans are filthy, disgusting creatures that exude oils, soiling these beautiful Apple products. You sound like the, holog- the insane holographic doctor from that uh, episode of Star Trek. There are so many sci-fi shows that have <laughs> similar purpose, but it's true. It's true. I mean, can can you imagine if you were if you were like a uh, a species from another planet or some sort of uh, uh, artificial intelligence looking down at the at the Earth and seeing that we were these these creatures that, as far as they're concerned, are just constantly emitting vapors and liquids and that we've created these devices to help us interact with digital data but we we shove our like meaty greasy paws against them to get them to, to get them <laughs> ugly to bags of mostly water as as you're famous uh, for saying or meat the uh the great <laughs> they uh, eat. internet yeah <laughs> they the, eat meat. Yeah, they're they, made of meat they're no, made I'm of meat you, they're made of meat that's a classic <laughs> i did i should find that with the show notes it's a good one 
Okay, uh, what do we have next? Jasper Teal is my uh, guinea pig for the continuing aggravation with the iPad not having a number. He wrote a pretty long email sort of capturing all of the issues people have with it in, in a, a nice, succinct form. So, you know, how, how are friends supposed to tell each other which device they have? How are supposed to, people supposed to identify the device on eBay? Uh, he points out that owning a particular model number is a matter of pride. This reminded me of, uh, as many things do, uh, the car world, which I'm also, uh, which I also follow, follow very closely and have, I guess, have I followed the car world longer than, no, not longer than Max. Uh, probably about a tie. So in the world of luxury cars, this this whole problem of how do I tell what model I have or do I take pride in having a newer, better version of a car than someone else? This has always been something they've struggled with. And I'm not talking about across brands like, oh, I have a Honda and you have a Buick and I feel superior for whatever reason. I'm saying within a brand. One one, uh, commonly referred to example of this is when Honda made the Acura brand. Uh, Acura is the luxury mark of the Honda car company. They didn't want to call it Honda because people don't want to spend $50,000 for Honda, but if you give it a different name, then, then they'll buy it. So when the, when the Acura line was first launched, one of its, I think its, its main flagship car was called the Legend, the Acura Legend. Do you remember that car? Mm, not really. No, you're not a car person. Anyway, it, like, it was just a Honda car, but it was very fancy and had a fancy interior, but uh, that was their top-of-the-line car. And they sold a lot of Acura Legends because Acura was a good idea. You know, Honda had good reliability, and people like Hondas. And uh, luxury cars have better margins, so make this Acura brand and sell this car uh, called the Legend, which is our top-of-the-line four-door sedan. And people really liked that, but the problem was that people really liked the Acura Legend. And so people would say, oh, I've got a Legend. Oh, you know, let's, let's, let's go take my Legend. It was a good name, but nobody was saying Acura. No one would ever say, I have an Acura. And when you're trying to launch a car brand like Acura that was sort of manufactured out of thin air from an existing car company, you really want to establish Acura means luxury. Oh, so this is why they, they came out with like the TL. and Yeah, so, so eventually Acura said, we can't keep giving our cars catchy names, the Acura right. Integra, you know, you've heard of that. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, the Acura Legend, the Integra was later, but it, you know, the Legend name was the first one they would say, we really have a problem here, because no one is, like, they do surveys and say, do you associate these names with luxury? And they'd say, like, Mercedes and Rolls-Royce, but you'd say Acura, and it wouldn't, wouldn't get a good association, even though people love their Acura Legends, and it was the top-of-the-line car, so it was their flagship. So they said, we got to stop naming our cars. Don't give them names like uh, Integra and Legend. Give them things that are not as memorable. Uh, so the Acura Integra becomes the Acura RSX, and you've got the TL and the, the what are they called now? They, they, they went with with numbers. What are, what are the current Acura lines? NSX, the, RSX, TL. Yeah. The NSX was actually uh, the vanguard of that, but that was always called the NSX. And what they're trying to make you do is go more towards the name Acura because the the alphabet soup of letters is not that catchy. Now, I think an alphabet soup of letters is still kind of catchy because when you say NSX, people know what you're talking about, or car people do anyway. But TL is kind of boring, so people will say, oh, you know, which car is yours? Mine's the Acura. You're not going to tell someone who's looking for your car in a parking lot what particular letters are on the badge. You're just going to say Acura, and that gives more brand awareness to Acura. Mercedes, in my life, to many ways, he's always done this. Mercedes were always maybe a letter and then just a, a bunch of numbers, and the numbers used to be really very obscure. Same with BMW. So Mercedes had a letter and then 580, 320, whatever, and BMW had... 
325, 335. People want some sort of classification, though. So Mercedes has the C-class, E-class, S-class, SL, you know, on up to, to, uh, to sort of segment their line. But if you say, I have a Mercedes, they'll probably find it because they look for the big Mercedes thing. And when you say, I have a Mercedes C-class, maybe they'll look for the C at the beginning. But most non-car nerds don't know what those numbers mean after the, you know, the, the letters in a Mercedes. And at various times, they've meant either nothing or they're supposed to mean engine displacement or they're supposed to mean engine displacement, but they're actually not accurate because the engine displacement is actually you know, 298, but they put a 300 on it because it looks like a nicer round number. <laughs> it's, it, but it forces people to say, I've got a BMW or I've got a Mercedes or I've got a BMW 3 Series or I've got a BMW 5 Series. They're not going to say I have a BMW 535iXQPJ. You know, they're pushing people away from using that as an identifier. Uh, and one interesting side effect of this in the in the 80s, I don't know if this still goes on, is that Mercedes had had its S class, which was this top of the line four door sedan, and they had the the 600 series, which were the ones with V12s. So you had the SL 600 and the S 600. And if you bought a Mercedes, especially if you were shopping in that type of price range you would want people to think you had the fancy one. Because externally, this is another thing Mercedes did, especially back then. Externally, all the Mercedes would look the same. The only difference would be a badge on the back or what number it says. So this says, you know, S350, which was a quarter or half the price of the, the S600. So there was an aftermarket for buying badges that said S600, and they would scrape off your S350 badge and put on your S600 badge. Wouldn't change your car at all, but when people saw it parked somewhere, they're like, this guy can afford a $90,000 Mercedes V12 versus merely a $50,000 you know, V6. I don't know if they ever made a V6 S-Class, probably a V8 or whatever it was. And those prices probably aren't right because this was in the 80s. Uh, so that's a struggle they have. They want brand awareness. They want to segment it, but they don't want people obsessing over the little things. So Apple is going through the struggle now, I think, where they want people to want the new iPad or whatever. But they don't want people to be comparing on specs and saying, oh, I've got a Performer 7, 750 and you've got a Performer 6100 CD, so mine is... The, that's, that's too much. Uh, and with the iMac, some people will say that's too little because they just say iMac and no one has any idea what's in them and you just, you're just measuring it by screen size or something like that. So Jasper goes on to say uh, the question of why computing devices like Macs and PowerBooks, he says PowerBooks must be old school, don't need model numbers. So the, fir- the first part of his answer is he thinks they should have model numbers for exactly the same reasons that you can't tell what you have, you can't compare them, it's very confusing. Uh, but then he goes on to say, well, why, why have they been able to get away with not having part numbers for so long for the iMac or whatever? And he thinks that's because desktops and laptops years ago got to the point of being fast enough, and he's got fast enough in quotes. And longtime listeners of the show should know what I'm going to say about that. There's no such thing as fast enough, not even close. There never will be in the lifetime of anyone listening to this thing. There is such a thing as feeling faster than a previous version, and there is such a thing as not being so slow that it's unusable, but there's no such thing as fast enough. And the the idea that somehow desktop computing is like, well, does it really need to be any faster? Oh, yeah, it needs to be faster. It needs to be way, 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 way (laughs) faster. And if you don't think it needs to be faster, I invite you 10 years from now you know, save your computer that you have now, put it aside, hermetically seal it, and then 10 years from now, go back and use that one that you thought was fast enough and see if it feels like you can get through the day using this device. Man, it feels fast enough. At that point, your phone will probably be 100 times faster than this thing. But you will say, so this is the computer you said was fast enough. There's no reason for you to use a faster computer, right? Just use this one. It's fine. No, that's not how 
That's not how the world works. So I don't think that's why they get away with not having part numbers. That somehow people are like, well, an iMac, an iMac is an iMac, is an iMac. If an iMac was an iMac was an iMac, the iMac that you buy now, you would have no reason to replace in five years. But I guarantee you in five years, you'll have reason to replace that. You might say, oh, it's just because of the screen or whatever. But I'm, I'm using fast as a catch-all here. The idea is that the hardware is not that important. You know, it's, hardware is currently sufficient. So they're not trying to sell you an iMac because the hardware is better. I think they are trying to sell you an iMac because the hardware is better. But it'll be faster. It'll have a better screen. It'll have more RAM. It'll have more sensors. That's, that's hardware right, But if, if Apple has moved to what is essentially now about a yearly schedule for updates, and let's say they do that across the line. We do this with cars. You say, oh, you have a 2008, you know, BMW, whatever, and, and, and that's it. Wouldn't wouldn't Apple be just as successful doing that, saying, well, I have a 2012 iPad or a 2013 iPad? Yeah, long ago, car companies settled on the model year thing, but model years have almost nothing to do with the calendar year, almost entirely nothing to do with the calendar year. As people who follow the car market know, because you could be ordering right now a, a 2013 model. Uh, and you could have gotten 2012 models. You know, sometimes they're a, a, a year, sometimes more, off of what they when you actually buy the car. You could go to a, a car store right now and buy, and for some makes a 2013 model and walk off the drive off the lot with it, and it's not 2013. So what the heck meaning does that year have? It's just the, the way they've chosen to. You know, this is the next iteration of this car, and cars have the same type of thing. Well, a new Honda Accord will come out. And they will iterate on that Honda Accord, that same platform and body style, maybe tweaking the bumpers, tweaking the interior, tweaking the options for several years, and then a new one will come out. But there's nothing differentiating those Honda Accords as far as the buyer is concerned, except this one looks different than that one. They don't say this is the fifth generation Accord, even though car nerds know what generation Accord it is or car nerds know what generation the new BMW 3 Series is. But the branding is not, here's the, the new platform for the BMW 3 Series. And the platforms have names. But non-car nerds don't know those names. They just know, I go into the BMW dealer and like, here's this year's model and here's last year's model. That's the only thing that the car dealer is probably going to talk to you about. And if you're not a car nerd, maybe you can say, well, why does that one look different than this one? But they change the body styles from year to year too. You really have to be a, a real car nerd to know, so is this a different platform than that one? Did they change the drivetrain? Is this the new generation of engine? You know, is this the, is this the uh, someone in the chat room, tell me what the current BMW... Uh, platform is is it f30 for the new three series is this the f30 or is this the whatever the past one was i don't remember that one either e96 or something like that those are those are terms that only have those are like the the exact they're not there's not really a good equivalent in the computer world but those terms aren't known by regular customers and it's not a problem in the showroom it's just basically this year's car or last year's car is this the newest one i get and if it's not and Sometimes they change the body styles radically on the same platform with the same powertrain. So you could say, wow, this car looks totally different than that one. They must be completely different. No, maybe it's exactly the same platform, exactly the same drivetrain. They just put a different body on it and maybe change a little bit of the interior and you can't tell. So somehow the car market continues to function without massive consumer confusion and with everybody being happy with model years, as you pointed out, as the only way of saying, is this a 2011 BMW or is this a 2012 BMW? With no indication in the public-facing uh, advertising that the 2012 BMW 3 Series is an entirely different car, more or less, than the 2011, even though they look very similar on the outside and only a car nerd would know that difference. They don't call them new generation version 1, new generation version 2, and then, then the third generation version 1, version 2, version 3. They just go with years. It's really just arbitrary what you go with. And for IMAX, 
they don't go with years either. Because going with years, as Microsoft found out, is really dangerous because, or as Quicken is finding out now, because it can very quickly make your product seem outdated when you're selling the same, when you don't upgrade it every single year. So recently Quicken came out with Quicken 2007 for Lion, which is kind of <laughs> crappy. Where, well, Quicken as a whole, like, don't you feel crappy buying a product that, with 2007 in the name? And it, it, say, it, yeah, it's very, it, at, at the very least, it's confusing. Yeah, like, do you have the latest Quicken? I don't know, I have 2007. Like, if you miss a model year, uh, if you miss a year, or or you put out the one for the next year and the current year, it just, people get upset, especially with computer software, if they feel like they're using outdated stuff because they're always paranoid about being left behind by progress. Uh, so, he, he, Jasper concludes this letter saying... To not honor them, meaning the products with an actual model name, is really dim-witted of Apple and hugely annoying. Well, the annoyance, I can't comment on. If you're annoyed by it, then you're annoyed by it. Dim-witted of Apple makes me say, well, what do, what do you mean by that? Dim-witted because it's a mistake. It shows they're not, they're not smart. Well, as far as Apple's concerned, how could this choice not to give the new iPad a prominent model number affect them? My question is you know, to, to assess whether Apple's really dim-witted, whether they're making a mistake. Will it decrease sales? I'm going to say no on that. Uh, people, know, people know there's a new iPad. People are lining up at the store at them. Apple's going to sell a ton of them. I really don't see how... I can't, I can't formulate an argument to say that if they had used model numbers, it would have increased their sales. I think their sales will be the same with or without a model number. And if people have an iPad... They know whether they bought that before they saw that ad on TV about the new iPad. Like, I think people know whether they have the new iPad or not. Because if you bought your iPad sometime in the past and then you see a TV ad that says, hey, the new iPad, you know yours isn't it. And if three months from now you see an ad that says, hey, the new iPad, it's the first time you've ever seen it. If you bought an iPad in the last three months, I think you probably know that you got the new one because you're going to buy it. You're going to go to the store. You're going to talk to salespeople. People are going to ask you, is that the new one? Like, I don't think there will, there will be any customer confusion causing decreased sales or people accidentally buying the iPad, too, because they think it's the latest one. I just don't see that, especially with Apple's retail presence, where I think most non-nerds think they have to go to buy Apple products, even though nerds know you can order them online. I don't think it will hurt their sales at all. Will it decrease customer satisfaction? Because that could hurt Apple too. Like, will, will people not be as happy with the iPad because it doesn't have a model number? I think the lack of model numbers, sort of like, well, it's not the same as the car model numbers. I, I think the lack of model numbers makes people feel less bad about the iPad they have. Because if you have a 2, and you know it's a 2, and people have a 3, and that 3 is so prominent, you know 2 is less than 3, and you feel bad. In the same way that I think iPhone 4 owners felt less bad when the iPhone 4S came out because oh, just, they just added an S to mine, so my iPhone 4 isn't that bad. Even though like, you know, the entire guts were changed. Just a new CPU, new GPU, new, it's just a new camera, new everything. It was basically, there was nothing the same about that except for like the case. Even the antenna was different. Maybe the pieces of glass and the screen were the same on, on the iPhone 4 versus the 4S. But because it had a 4 in the name, it, it would help the iPhone 4 owners not feel like they're being left that far behind. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, the 4S made pundits crump, grumpy because they said, oh, we were expecting an iPhone 5 and we just got an S added to the 4 and Apple's falling behind and stuff like that. So I think the lack of numbers in the iPad 3 has kind of stumped both camps. The people who were like, well, I have a 2, I, you know, 
if someone came out with a three, I'd feel bad. But they, and if they came out with a two S, I would feel like, oh, my two is still kind of hanging in there. But they just came out with something called the iPad. How do I feel about that? And the pundits were totally thrown off their game because they can't say, oh my God, iPad two S instead of three, we expected a three. They've shifted all their attention to complaining about the lack of numbers, not complaining about the product, which I guess is a win for Apple. So I think it won't decrease customer satisfaction. If anything, it might increase customer satisfaction with, with previous models. And it gives the press something to talk about other than the specs of the device and whether because they just don't know what to say. They have nothing to grab onto. They have to actually look at it and and judge it as a product instead of just falling back on the on the numbering thing. So I don't think this move is dimwitted of Apple. I don't think that it will materially affect them. Uh, they may go back to numbers at some point. I don't know, but I think this is a worthwhile experiment. They're engaging in though. That was longer than I expected it to be. Can I do a sponsor before I continue the uh, follow up? Yeah, we can definitely do a sponsor. I like your follow-up, though. It's very organized. A lot of notes. Let me tell you about our first sponsor. It's Hover.com. Hover, it's as simple. They make domain names simple. That's how you can remember them. They're a breath of fresh air for domain names. Everybody uh, is used to this incredibly difficult process of registering. It's a domain name. How complicated can it be? You, you, you type the name of the, of the domain you want. You click submit. Is it available? Yes, buy it. Is it not available? No, you can't buy it. That's it. That's the whole part. How come this whole checkout procedure, you ever go to Fry's or one of these other things where they make you walk through the little hamster maze of all of these different other little last minute impulse buy? That's the way that that these uh, domain name registrars are. I won't name any of the other ones that do this. You can't just go and buy a domain and check out and be done with it. It shouldn't be this hard. You should be able to just type in the thing, buy it, done. Oh, you want to transfer a domain? They have the cool thing, the same thing you see when you order your iPad and FedEx shows you where, is it on the truck? Is it at the local processing? They have a little progress bar. These guys, Hover.com, they have the, the same kind of progress bar for when you do a domain name transfer. Everything is simple. Everything is elegant. They get a great help section. If you need help, you can email them. You can call them. A human being will answer and help you. And uh, for listeners of 5x5 and this show, there's a coupon. So the first thing that you do is you go to Hover.com slash uh, Dan sent me one word, Dan sent me. And you can also go when you're there and you're ready to buy something and you want to get, well, why not 10% off? Use the code Dan sent me and you will benefit 10%, whatever it is that you're buying. Check them out. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. A surprising amount of email from people looking for a domain registrars and they can never remember the one that we talked about on the show. So all you people listening, it's Hover. I don't know how you want to get a mnemonic to remember it. Hover.com, a floating thing. Think of a hovercraft. <laughs> That's the one that we're always talking about on the show. And you can you can go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 59, which is the episode that you're listening to. And it will be right there above the player in the show notes area. It will have the links and the promo code information and everything. And it will be right there. And I all of the confidence. What's that? I was asking, I love the confidence you have in our listeners that, you, that you're able to read a URL on the air. Say 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 59. You can't do that with other audiences. You can't read URLs like that. You're lucky if you can read, you know, myname.com for some domain <laughs> name. You read an actual full URL with complete confidence that people will not be confused by the slashes, the backslashes. This no. is your audience, man. Of course I'm know, confident. They know now. what URLs are. That's right. 
I would say for the people who didn't catch that entire URL, no one am right. You just go to the website. You can just find go to the website and remember episode fifty nine. That's enough. You'll find it. And uh, by the way, with the show notes, all of these notes that John meticulously collects and organizes. He complains when the drag and drop didn't work. It's back. It works again. All of that stuff. You can see that uh, in the show notes, all of his hard work. And we want to say thanks to the helpspot.com guys, the, uh, the tallest men in the help desk software business, help, uh, helpspot.com. This is another instance of a show where I thought I wouldn't have enough material and I realized I have enough for three shows. <laughs> Maybe we'll pick and choose. We'll, <laughs> we're half we an hour, we're half an hour into it. I know I got a lot. iPhoto for iOS. I think this was actually in the notes last week, but I didn't get to talk about it. Have you tried iPhoto for iOS? Sir, I have not tried iPhoto for iOS yet. And it is something that uh, I I wanted to experience on the new iPad. This was a conscious decision. I didn't want to try it on the old one. I wanted to have this be part of my my new experience, unveiling and, and experiencing the new iPad. What about you? I'm assuming no new iPad there. So yes, you've tried it. Yeah, I tried it. I tried it before I'd actually even seen the keynote because, you know, the uh, as soon as I got home, I just loaded it on my wife's iPad before I'd had time to sit down and watch the thing. So I had never even seen anyone demonstrate this program. I'd only heard typed transcripts of what was going on in it. So I launched the app and, oh, and I'd seen a few Twitter gripes about the app. So I launched it and tried to figure out how to use it. That's That UI is not obvious on there. Not obvious at all, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. And, and if we get to this other topic later in the show, I'll talk about that. Please define but, what you mean when you say not obvious. Well, I, so I've been using computers for a little while, and I, I've been using iOS for a little while. I think I'm pretty familiar with it. But you launch this app, and there's a lot of stuff on the screen that you're not sure what it does or how to use it. <laughs> uh, and after I watched the demonstration video, <laughs> I realized that during the demo, I forget who was, who was demoing it, probably Randy Ubilos or whatever his name is. He did stuff in that demo that I had not discovered on my own, which very rarely happens with the, happens with the program. Usually like, oh, they're just going to demo the basic features. He was showing things, that, you know, but if there's no visual indication that you can like swap the tiles from one side to the other by, by swiping across the whole thing, you might not know that that happens. And all sorts of things that he was using, like, where is that? How does that? Where did that come from? And Apple, I think, knows this about this application because prominently in the application is a thing that you can hit for help. I think it's like a question mark or something that suddenly makes tooltips appear pointing to all the different UI elements. Tap here to do this. Tap here to do that. Use this tool for this. Without that help, and I was using that help, by the way, even, even with that help, it was difficult to know the different gestures you could do. But without that help, I would be like, what the heck is this icon? What does that mean? A lot of the controls, like, they have picture controls for, it's like, is this, is this adjusting the hue? Is this saturation? It's very difficult to express concepts like that with icons. So it's a very, I don't know, it, it's a puzzling UI. I think once you figure it out and once you know where everything is, it's very efficient and the things that it does are, are pretty amazing. But if you give iPhoto to someone who has never used it before, good luck to them. It's not going to fall readily underhand. It will not say, oh, because I've used photo editing applications before, I know exactly how this works. Because I've used iPhoto on the Mac, I know exactly how this works. Or even because I've used tons of other iOS apps, so looking at this one, I'll know exactly how it works. It is very different than any other application that I've used on iOS. Uh, and Lucas Mathis has a blog post about this. Uh, he calls it iPhoto's Mystery Meet Gestures. Mystery Meet Navigation is a term that's familiar to people who were web nerds back in the 90s. Mystery Meet Navigation, he, he provides a link to it, but my understanding of the term has always been those web UIs in the 90s where it would look really cool and have these cool graphics and stuff, but to figure out what anything did, you'd have to hover your mouse over it, and then like some mouth would open, and it would say, this is where you can go to see the trailers for this movie, and the mouth would close, and you'd put your mouse over the next little piece of mystery meat navigation. It would say, 
find showtimes here. Instead of just saying trailers and showtimes, you know, you'd have to hover over things and figure out what they were. Or sometimes you hover over them and nothing happened. You just have to click them. What happens when I click the clown's nose? Oh, I guess that takes me to the customer service page. Well, how was I supposed to know that? Well, iPhoto's mystery meet gestures is another place where there's no visual indication of what this thing does until you stab it to find out. Uh, and the gestures, there's no visual indication of anything. How am I supposed to know that I can swipe like just across the whole screen to make this thing move? How, how is that discoverable at all? Of course, once you discover it, you know it's there, but it's not obvious what it is. So I put this link in the show notes and I'm going to recite the whole article. But for people who are wondering what my issues are with the iPhoto uh, for iOS's UI, you can read that. You agree wholeheartedly with the article? Pretty much. Although I don't necessarily think that something being undiscoverable means that the application is bad. It just means that it's not easily discoverable. The last show, which I gave a dual title, which I'm now regretting because I think it's too long. Uh, I mentioned it was the, one of the titles was The Four Tuners, which was a reference to my new four-tuner TiVo that can record four programs at once. And I listed the four tuners in the good section. Uh, but I had one negative about the four tuners that I forgot to get to that I want to point out now. So I don't know if it's a negative. It's kind of, it might just be neutral. Oh, you can decide. This thing has four tuners, right? And TiVo has a feature where based on what you've told it to record and what you've given thumbs up or thumbs down to or whatever, it will try to record suggestions for you. So it'll say, hey, you know, I'm not recording anything right now, but there's a show on that based on all the shows that you recorded, it seems like you might like, so I'll record this for you. And I actually like that feature because occasionally suggestions do pick up things that I'm interested in. And if they don't pick it up, so what? They get, they get deleted off the end. They don't take up any space. You know, the suggestions are the first things to go if the TiVo ever needs space. Now, this four-tuner TiVo, though, will use all four tuners to record suggestions. So often I'll see all four of the little recording lights. And I'm like, it's recording four things at once? What the heck is it recording? And I'll go look it up and it's four suggestions. That seems like a little overkill to me. It's like, well, you know, if you're not, it's kind of, if you're not using those turners, tuners, then what do you care? If you, it's not conflicting with anything you want to record, if something you want to record conflicts, it will just stop one. I just worry that recording four suggestions at once, A, is going to fill up my hard drive with suggestions, and B, is going to, it's, it's not so much filling the hard drive because you know to delete it, but like, this is a mechanical device, and using it wears it down because it has a spinning hard drive in there. So, the amount of extra I.O. going through suggestions that are probably just going to be churned off the end before I ever delete them, I'm thinking maybe, maybe give me an option to, to say, all right, just use two tuners for suggestions. Or just use one tuner for suggestions. I don't need to use four tuners for suggestions. Because otherwise then it's like constantly going at full steam recording four programs at once. And I don't want my hard drive to die. <laughs> and I have so little faith in the software that like if there's any sort of bug or race condition, it's more likely to be triggered when the thing is like maxed out recording four shows at once. So I don't know how I feel about recording four suggestions at once. It just initially struck me as perhaps not a great idea. And if I could tell it to use fewer tuners, I would. All right. And uh, Leston Lloyd, presumably living in the UK, tells me, oh, yes, yes. He says, I feel really lucky to be in the UK and have great DVRs from TV Onyx and Humax UK. So these are two companies that I've never heard of that apparently make digital video recorders in the UK or maybe and elsewhere because Humax is called Humax UK. So I looked at their websites and some demo videos of these DVRs being used. They were not that impressive to me. They didn't seem super slow, though. They didn't look particularly pretty, and their features 
like I, I didn't see one and say, oh, I'll definitely use that over a TiVo. But it is interesting to me that there are these whole, you know, as an ugly American, we don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. This whole other companies that I've never heard of making products that apparently people love in places even as small as the UK, which is probably, you know, one eighth the size of Texas and has about <laughs> the same number of people. <laughs> I also think that, that, that TV Onyx is an awful name. But then again, I'm always surprised at what <laughs> how things are named in England. TV Onyx? No. TV is not a good name either, I guess. Humax is like, I don't know. Maxim, maximum like, Humans. Yeah, it's some sort of <laughs> company that sells food for cannibals. Yeah, did you ever hear that one? <laughs> on, uh, it was on the Daily, Daily Show episode where uh, they had a marketer, like a great marketer, or some some guy who was great about manipulating words to, I, I think maybe maybe the guy who came up with USA Patriot or or came up with Death Tax. Maybe it was the same guy. I might be getting shows confused. And they gave him a challenge. It's a comedy program for people who don't know, so it's not going to be a serious thing. And the challenge was uh, the product is Hufu, which was tofu made to look and feel like human f- flesh. For people who are, are interested in cannibalism but don't want to a- eat actual people, can we make tofu that looks and feels like human flesh? And it's called Hufu. And so they said, I challenge you to come up with a marketing slogan for Hufu, which is you know, obviously a pretty big challenge. And this guy, I think it was on the spot. This guy really impressed me with this. Maybe he had time to think about it. Maybe they gave him the, the question ahead of time. Uh, this is what he came up with. He said, Hufu, the taste of good friends. Oh, God. <laughs> Which I thought was excellent for on the spot. So, Humax <laughs> makes me think that it's some sort of a cannibal-related tofu product. Our TiVo representative in the chat room tells me that there's no difference in I.O. from recording four channels because it's always buffering uh, all four channels for 30 minutes. And he, he would know. So I guess that there's, he's saying there's no significant extra IO overhead of saving that recording rather than letting it fall off the end. Because when you're, when you're watching a television show, it's constantly buffering and recording. That's why you can go back in time for up to 30 minutes. I didn't know that it was also doing that for all four tuners. So maybe it's not wearing out my hardware anymore than I thought it would be. Although now I'm worried that it's buffering all four tuners for 30 minutes and I wish I could stop it from doing that. But I don't know. It, maybe it's just a discomfort with seeing those four lights on constantly. It just seems like it's doing more work than... Now, remind me, John, have you ever expanded your TiVo with one of those external... No, I always just buy the biggest one, and uh, I haven't run out of space. Like, they, these things hold tons of... I, I don't, like, archive shows there that much, so it's really just a... I just need a, a window of stuff that turns over. Well, I, I had a, an anecdote to share with you about that and, and the listeners, if you're interested. All right, go for it. I did not buy the largest TiVo when I bought the one that I bought a few years ago and uh, did want to expand it. And I bought an external eSATA, SATA drive, connected it, you know, it formatted it, it used it fine, a number of months went by. Then we moved here and I went to reconnect it and booted up the TiVo and clearly something terrible happened to this drive. Now I moved with a ton of drives. And I won't even go into how I moved with them to ensure that they were safe and what I used multiple shipping methods to send them. I kept some with me physically on my person at all times, uh, you know, taped taped to my body as if they were plastic explosive and a variety of other methods to, methods to ensure that the data would not be hurt. But I didn't. I said, you know, I don't care about this drive. This one can go in the moving truck. And it died in the moving truck. But when it was plugged in, the TiVo, you're, you're familiar with the older TiVos. I don't know about the new ones, but you know how they have that incredibly long boot-up sequence that shows a video of the little TiVo guy, like, spending time with a family and playing with the kids and the family. You know that video. 
the boot up sequence is still incredibly long. What you're talking about is the video that plays after it's done booting. And right. yes, I'm familiar with that video. So this whole process would repeat over and over and over. And it would it never stopped. It went on like this for several hours. Uh, because apparently if you have a, at least this generation of TiVo, I don't even know what it is, had that problem where it would continuously reboot itself. It would hit some kind of a problem reinitializing the drive and it would reboot. And after about an hour or so of this, I'd unplug the drive and it booted just fine. And of course it complained that the drive was there and you'd lose your, your stuff. Uh, so I don't recommend that. Yeah. That's why I've always been wary about the external things. I figure better to just get the biggest one internal that I can, even though they have eSATA connections off the back and everything. It just always struck me as weird. And plus they always want you to buy the, there's like the TiVo approved eSATA thing or right. you know, buy, a, buy a different one and get it to work. But that's always, I'd rather just have it all in one. Well, I wanted, to, I wanted to hear if you knew about this because my understanding is that it will store, the way that it, it stores the data, it splits it up onto the different drives. But my understanding is it doesn't just fill up the first drive and then start filling up the second drive, that it somehow uses them in tandem and might even, I don't know if it's striping the data or doing something, but it seems like they very much don't ever want you to disconnect this. And I always wondered if the reasoning was something that you thought might be a a problem that they wanted to circumvent or if they were doing it simply as a countermeasure to prevent users from maybe trying to do something else with that data. I think your first theory sounds reasonable to me that it, once it has two spindles that it would actually try to use them to get more IO right. instead of just like, you know, filling one and then filling the other. Okay. But I don't know for sure. But don't do it anyway if you're thinking yeah. about it. One more TiVo thing that I meant to mention TiVo has this thing, like many products, that when you start using it, it will tell you about the features in the product in some sort of time-metered way. Uh, usually for a product that you buy in a store, it's like they'll send you an email. Say, hey, I see you got a new blah, blah. Did you know that you can do this with it? Well, within TiVo, there's a messages thing that's sort of like email within the TiVo application itself. And you'll see messages like, oh, your channel lineup has changed. Or there's a software update available for you. Or someone used our website to set up a season pass. Little messages on the TiVo itself. And it makes a little mail, a little envelope icon appear next to the menus. And by the way, how long is it before kids don't know what that icon represents? <laughs> sort of like the telephone, AT&T telephone handset for kids who have never seen. What is that banana-shaped thing with the barbells on the end? <laughs> Eventually people know that. But if you're obsessive like me, or a lot of people have this problem where you don't like to see like that unread count badge there, you want to clear it. So even though these messages usually aren't interesting to me, I always want to go in there and clear it. And it's annoying to me, oh, the little envelope, go into messages, see what it is, read it or delete it, or just clear that little thing so I don't have to see that staring at me. So when I got my TiVo, I got it all set up about a day later, I get a little message that says, did you know there's something called a season pass? You can use it to record shows. Instead of telling it to record every single time, it can record the entire run of the show for you. Go into this menu and blah, 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 season pass, blah, blah, blah. I would think that TiVo has sufficient knowledge, considering the TiVo is basically an internet-connected computer, to know that I have over 100 season passes. And maybe don't send the email telling the person with over 100 season passes that season passes exist. And repeat this for every feature that I already know exists and I'm using extensively. I don't need, did you know that you can switch tuners with the, but if you've seen me switch tuners, don't send me that email. The season pass one really just bothered me though. Because they, you know I have season pass, you know it, they're on your website, you have this data, it's been transferred to your servers, you absolutely positively know that I have over 100 season passes. Don't send me the little message about how season passes work. That's just, that's just good manners. 
All right, that's it for the follow-up. Boy, that was long. That was long. I got two topics today. I got Apple TV and uh, Chris Perillo's dad. Oh, that's a good that's a good one. Wow. Can we do both? We if have to have, do both. No, we have, have we must. If you have time, we, we must. Do. I'll try to go through Apple TV fast because I think I just have minor things about this. So Well, how about this? I'll do a sponsor before each of the topics. All and right. It can well, feel very organized for people. There you go. Uh, the first one is going to be squarespace.com. Are you familiar with this? I am. Okay. This is this I love these guys. They they've been very, very supportive of us here and uh Everybody that I know who has switched to Squarespace, as I've done for a number of sites, absolutely loves it. Very simple. It's a fully hosted, managed environment that lets you go in there. You can create a beautiful website. Blog, sure. Portfolio, absolutely. All of these things that you might want to do. If you're thinking about creating a website of any kind, you want to host podcasts of your own, whatever it is, squarespace.com is the place to go for this stuff. And I've been talking about features and things. And this week I said, you know what? They're, they're doing a new run. I called, I talked to Ryan over there. I said, listen, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about features anymore. People can go to squarespace.com. They can see the features. I'm like, that's fine. Why would they want to use this? Because it's going to save them time. It's going to make their life easier. And this is what we're all about, right? This is what, the, at the essence, a lot of what you talk about here, John, is you, you want things to be better. You want things to work the way they're supposed to work. Squarespace will make, it, this sounds like contrived, it's true, it will make your life better because you'll worry about fewer things. You'll, where's your site hosted? Doesn't matter. Well, what if I get linked by a big uh, website? What if John Gruber links me? What if it's uh, an RS Technica? Doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about scaling. You don't have to worry about performance. They do all of that stuff. You don't have to configure the blog yourself and make sure the security patches are there and there isn't a new hole discovered in the Nginx web server. None of that matters. They do all of that your life will be easier. And if you're deploying this to a client, if you actually like are building something for a client, you want them to be able to take over it and you don't want to be called at 3 a.m. to fix their problem, squarespace.com. It's got a special deal. 30% off for three months. You must use this special code. Dan sent me three, the number three. Why? Because this is March. It's the third month. Dan sent me three. Very important you use that code. Uh, it shows support for uh, for us and what we're doing here and it lets those guys know that's where you came from so go check it out squarespace.com marlon's a big squarespace user isn't he sure is i'm always uh shocked at how quickly he puts up a new website i don't know how many websites he has it's all because he uses squarespace because he'll have an idea and five minutes later there's an entire website dedicated to that idea that's his secret that he'll somehow continuously update. He's got <laughs> he's got one for toilet paper folding. Right. He's got other podcasts <laughs> outside the five by five network. He's got random pictures of things. He's got his official blog. He puts up websites like other people tweet. <laughs> That's true. All right, Actually, I'm going to try to close one of my redundant Skype windows here, and this may disconnect me. So All right, hang on. I did that. Right, didn't disconnect me. I did that to try to get my ability to mute back. I still don't have my ability to mute because Skype hates me. All right. Enough so l- listen, but, um, I'm going to send you a link. Actually, just go to bigweek.co. I'll put this into the show notes. But the first link there, if you see that, is a picture. It's a photograph. I just figured while we were talking to other hosts, you might. Do you see that? Hang on. Yes, I see that. That I is see that is Marco Arman's desk. I saw it. I saw that earlier today. I'm, yeah, 
you know. I wanted to see if you would care to comment on it. I can relate to it. This is how imagine your desk is. I I would not be able to tolerate that level of clutter. I have a li- <laughs> I have my limits. I try to keep my desk very clutter free. I just I'm not successful many times, but that's way over my limit. Way over. Do you leave but cash out not- just sitting out like that? His house is under construction. Well, he's got so much cash, you know, you know, can't find places to put it anymore. Exactly. Like he uses, somebody on Twitter said, I like that you use cash as tissue paper. Yeah. That's like a coaster, but there's drinks on there. Right. Who like cares? Got one, one drink on a map. Yeah. No, but his house is under construction and, you know, I, I, I can understand it. My, my wife's desk, on the other hand, is a big giant mess, but mine is usually cleaner than that. All right, Apple TV. Yes. So you ordered you ordered this the day it was announced, the 1080p, the brand new Apple TV. It's here. Let's hear about this. I've never had an Apple TV before, so many of the things I'm going to say were, are probably equally applicable to the previous generation black little square thing, which I think people refer to. This is another thing. What is that one called? At second generation Apple TV? There was uh, the silver one that was big, and yeah. then there was the small one that was black, and this is the second small one that was black. And somehow we continue to be able to figure out what we're buying and Apple continues to be able to sell us this product, despite the fact that it's not called Apple TV 3 or 4 or 7 or anything like that. The only Once real again. difference between yours and the previous black one, my understanding, is the 1080p support because we had the, the new... I have two of the previous black ones and one of the originals, but the previous black ones, they all received the update uh, that you have as well. Yeah, the software update. This, software. this hardware is different. In this it has a, My understanding is it has a single core A5 and the previous one had the A4 in there. So there is a big difference in the hardware. Internally, I bet this thing is all different than the previous one. But yeah. externally, it looks the same. And the only difference from the user's perspective, especially since Apple is not like TiVo and actually provides software updates for owners of earlier generations of its product, if you have any, the older uh, Apple TV black box thing, your software looks the same as mine now. Uh, which is nice. That always annoyed me about getting the, the TiVo HD when the premieres came out and they had a new HD interface or partially HD or whatever. They didn't backport it. They never backport. It's like, well, tough luck. You, you need to buy a whole new TiVo if you want the new software update. But enough TiVo complaining. So this is 1080p Apple TV. I was holding off buying it because I wanted 1080p, not because I thought the other product was bad, because I like the fact that there's no fan and I want to be able to watch Netflix with a device that has no fan. So I'll start off with the big, biggest problem with the Apple TV. You've, do you have the, this Apple TV? I have two, but not the 1080p one, the brand, brand, brand new one. I have two right. of the previous black ones. So this, this problem is not related to 1080p and would probably apply equally to the previous generation. What then do you think? I have my, two. What do you think my biggest complaint is? Oh, gosh, John. I How am I going to guess? You, you don't like the remote. You don't like the working yeah, through the menus. Yeah, you got it on guess number one. All right. The remote. See, how are you going to guess? that? Uh, this shows that, you know, there's... <laughs> I, I'm not completely offline this. The remote. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a terrible, terrible remote. No good. So, first, <laughs> the thing is too small to hold comfortably. There's, there's a balance between being big enough to hold comfortably and not being some gigantic thing. This, I mean, it looks cute in the picture. It fits in the box. Way too small to comfortably hold with adult-sized hands. What's bad about it being small makes it easier to lose. It's made out of aluminum, which or some other kind of metal, which fits well with Apple's aesthetic, but it has sharp edges. Sharp edges are not fun to hold. Sharp edges scratch my beautiful wooden end table when children <laughs> chuck the thing on it or scrape the thing off. 
It's not even, it's so small, it's not even easy to pick up without scraping it along on something. This is not a good remote design. The five-way control, the main thing you're using, up, down, left, right, and a select button in the middle. Way too easily to accidentally hit that middle select button. When I was painfully and laboriously entering my, you know, passwords for various services and stuff to getting the thing set up, which granted you only have to do once. Well, wait, well let, me said, let me stop you there. Yeah? Did you consider using the remote app on any of your iOS devices? I used that after I had got it set up. But does that have a keyboard? Yes. Wait a Anytime you go into a text field, it will pop up a little keyboard. So if you're searching, if you're searching on Netflix, if you're entering in... Now, obviously, you would need to have entered in the Wi-Fi password into the Apple TV before you can access it with the remote app. But after doing so, any keyboard entry, you can do it all right from the uh, right from that remote app. Wi-Fi? What is this? It's not Wi-Fi here. Gig- connect to a gigabit Ethernet okay. switch. So then, then, you have, then you could have used it immediately. Yeah. But wait a minute. How do you how do you get your iOS devices on the network? Yeah, I have Wi-Fi, but okay. I'm, for, for this, I mean, it's a stationary device. The Apple TV doesn't move; it's connected okay. with Ethernet. Good. So yeah, I should have I, I should have gone to the remote app. I actually forgot completely about the remote app until after I'd got it set up. But the entering the little text input is not. I'm not saying it's bad that you have to enter text with the remote, although that is bad. But you know, they have an alternative. It's that that's a good test of how easy it is to use the four way switch, and I. I didn't even think you ever needed to be tested because having used the TiVo and I don't have the little QWERTY slider Bluetooth TiVo remote, I'm very used to entering text with a little five-way control. And yeah, it's annoying, but I, I do it plenty. This is the first time in all my years of using a little five-way control with a remote with a television that I accidentally input characters when trying to, to put things because I was trying to move down, down, right, left, down, and I would accidentally hit the middle select button. It, that's, it's the thing. It's shaped kind of like a donut. And... <laughs> There's no real positive feedback for the four different directions. So you're right away, you're kind of unsure which, if you're getting exactly up and exactly left. Yeah, you can use the, the straight edges of the remote to help you with that. But the TiVo ring control, like, tries to eject your finger from it. The curve doesn't want your finger on it. It tries to push your finger away. So you're trying to get your finger poised on the hump of the curve to just press that and not accidentally press the middle thing. The TiVo remote is at least shaped kind of like a cone, and then the mi- middle select button is raised. So it's very easy to see whether you're on the, the middle select button or not because it's a raised little pedestal there. I've never accidentally hit the middle select button on the TiVo. I do still have the same problem with the TiVo where it's got a, one continuous ring and there's not as much physical feedback But okay, this is up and this is down and this is left and this is right because you can press at 45 degrees uh, an angle between. You, know, you can press southeast, northwest and which one gets hit is just a question of uh, how lucky you are at that particular time. The curved thing makes all that much harder. And practically speaking, I accidentally input letters. I would I would going, you know, I'm going around doing it and then I wasn't looking at what was being input. I look over at the thing and there's some extra characters there because I had accidentally hit the middle button in one of my transitions. And I don't know why all these people, TiVo and Apple included, don't just make it four separate buttons. Up, down, left, right. Make them separate buttons with you could feel with the difference, you know, I guess they just want to make it a ring because it looks nice or maybe it's cheaper. I don't even know why. Obviously, there's four separate activation things underneath there. It's not like a continuous scroll wheel that they're making there. Just make it separate buttons. So that remote is by far the worst part of this product because right now, uh, excluding the remote app, which I don't think Apple can uh, guarantee that everyone who buys an Apple TV even has an iOS device that can remote their own app. And you use that little remote to interact with this device, and it really influences how you feel about that device. It's what what does this thing feel like in your hand when you're using it? The TiVo, for all my complaints, the TiVo remote is actually very nice. I really like the TiVo remote design. 
most of the controls you want to use are in convenient places. They're different shapes, they're different sizes based on the prominence. The only, I mean, there are things I can complain about the TiVo remote about, like, say, the prominence and size of the 30-second skip button and how now there's the colored buttons that are the same size next to us. I have complaints about everything. But in general, the TiVo remote is a very interesting and very fun, innovative design that does most things right. The Apple TV remote is just terrible. And it's not Bluetooth, of course. UI sounds. That's probably in the, the is in the problem category. I don't know. I don't like any UI that makes sound. At least the sounds are more subtle than the TiVo sounds. TiVo ships out of the box with this crazy popcorn popping sound whenever you move anything <laughs> on the screen. Pop, 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 pop. That's too much. And it's really loud. People like that sound, I think. And they come to associate it with TiVo, which they have positive feelings about, but I need that sound to be off. The Apple TV sounds are much more subtle. Very quiet, little tinkling things, but they are there, and I was glad I could turn them off. The light on the front of the device, the Apple TV thing, looks like just a little featureless black rounded corner monolith, but it does actually have a light on it. And the light is tiny, tiny pinpoint of white light. Now, I'm not one of those people who needs to have every single light turned off on their television, mm-hmm. although interestingly, almost all of my products do have an option to turn it off. I think even my TV has an option in somewhere in the menus that says turn off the power light. But certainly the TiVo have always had an option to say, turn everything off, turn off all those lights that show you what you're recording. And I leave them on because I like to see, hey, what's recording or, you know, what's going on. They don't bother me, even though they're pretty darn big. They're like uh, this red circles for recordings. You get a possibly four red circles that are a little bit smaller than a dime. Uh, or they're not circles, they're rings. So they're pretty prominent. And then there's a blue one for when it's transferring. There's a green one for when the power's on. Lots of lights are staring at me and I don't find them distracting at all. So I add one device to my AV stack here, this little Apple TV, and I put it sort of, you know, towards the bottom off in the corner. And it's got this tiny pinprick white light. And somehow that one piercing white light bothers me when I'm watching TV. All these other red and green and blue giant, much larger lights, many, much more numerous, much closer to the screen, don't draw my eye. But this tiny white star is just piercing my eye from the corner there. So... <laughs> I started looking for an option to turn off that little white light thing and couldn't find it. I haven't, maybe it's still buried in there, but I'm maybe going for the black electrical tape. That's probably the way to go. Some people in the chat room are saying you can put the Apple TV behind the television and just bounce the IR off the wall. I could probably do that too. I, I But I, I like having direct line of sight on the thing. I'll just cover up the little light. Electrical or gaffer's tape? Black gaffer's tape. I don't have gaffer's tape, so I'm going to go with electrical. Okay. And I think that will do the job. Sure. The UI itself, I don't, I don't have, I'm not familiar with the past Apple TV UI, so I can't say how this one is better or different than the other ones. Considering what I plan to use this for, it's like how long does it take me to get to Netflix? It's a big red square that says Netflix. It's right on the screen. You know, no, no big problems there. The screens change quickly. There's no weird animation between the screens. There's no flickering resolution changing. All the UI is in HD. Uh, the cover art and stuff for movies load quickly. I, the Ethernet connection probably helps there. Overall. The UI isn't, doesn't wow me, but I don't have any significant complaints about it. It pretty much does what it's supposed to do. This is my first time using AirPlay as well. AirPlay is Apple's brand name for, I don't know what it's in. It's their brand name for wirelessly sending video from one place to the other somehow. It's not really sending video wirelessly, but that, that's the word they use for it. Uh, I can't even remember what I did to set up AirPlay. I remember connecting to the thing, entering my Apple ID for some purpose or another, probably just for the iTunes store. Uh, 
I, I honestly cannot remember if I did anything in particular to set up AirPlay. But suddenly, every single Apple device in my house, of which there are many, many could send video to anywhere else. It was the most ju- it just works experience I've had from Apple in a long time. <laughs> suddenly, just everything is sent. I could see all the video on my Mac. I see all the video on my wife's Mac. I could see all the video on, on, on my iPods and on the iPhones. And they could send video to the TV. And I could see pictures from, from the iPods on the TV. No setup, no passwords, no nothing unbelievably easy, seamless experience. In fact, it was so easy, this is the only drawback, that after I had played with it and said, wow, this is neat, check this out, blah, 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 I'd gone back to what I was doing, and I was, you know, the television was turned off at this point, and I was on the couch, and I fired up Draw Something, which is the latest fad social game, uh, which I have many, many complaints about, but that's a different show. And when you launch Draw Something, it shows a startup screen animation that shows like a pencil and some rays of light coming from behind it and the logo comes dropping down or something. And apparently that startup screen splash animation thing is a movie because when I launched Draw Something from Springboard, it brought up a big thing that says this movie playing on your television. So it played the, the, the launch, the startup screen movie through my Apple TV on my television, which was turned off. And all I got to see on the iPad, uh, iPod in front of me was this little picture telling me that that's what it was doing. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I don't, that's, I don't, stop using, stop playing your video to the television. I'm looking at you now. The television is off. Obviously, the Apple TV was still on, but I had to try to convince my iOS device to stop displaying video on the Apple TV. You know how to do that easily, right? Well, at the time I didn't. And when I was, think, think of what I had just done. I had just launched, like, draw something, just an application. And it doesn't show a player control when it's showing that movie because it's not using the player interface. Like, it's just calling an API to play a QuickTime movie. Right. So there was no way from the screen that I was looking at to say, no, no, show that over here. And if you don't know, as I didn't, I had to Google this, I had completely forgotten about those things that are hiding in the iOS multitasking menu. Right. If, so if you double tap the home key, you get the little multitasking bar that shows you the applications you've launched recently. If you slide the other way on it, you've got like the volume control and a bunch of settings and stuff like that. And one of them is the little AirPlay button. And then you can tell it used the iPad used, you know. But I totally forgot those things exist. I went to settings to look for it, didn't find it. Uh, eventually, what I ended up doing before I Googled just to solve this when I was sitting there was go to the video player, which I knew showed a player control, which had the AirPlay icon. Tap the AirPlay icon and turned it off. It's, it, I can see so many people going through this exact experience, but not being able to figure out what they were doing wrong and saying, I don't understand why my iPhone plays videos when I'm out, but not when I'm at home or something. <laughs> yeah, you know right. what I'm saying? I mean, I, it's very, for people to, to experience this, I think that you're in the minority of people who were able to figure it out so quickly. Now, if you know it's called AirPlay, you just Google for, you know, I mean, it's not. But still, uh, I, that, guess, I guess you do need some it. basis in knowledge because as soon as I saw the Google result that that said multitasking and double tap, like there's the only words I had to read in the Google <laughs> result. Oh, it's hiding over there. Like because I never go to that section of of the the multitasking thing, but I, at least I knew it existed. So maybe it's too easy for devices to promiscuously share their video and information everywhere. But on the whole, I was very impressed with AirPlay. Uh, the only downsides to AirPlay are not AirPlay's fault, but are the fault of Apple with its continuing. Uh, separating of people into islands so for example photo stream uh photo stream to get photo stream stuff you have to sign in with an apple id but then right away i'm i have a problem because well i want to see our family pictures well whose apple id is being used for the family pictures my wife's iphone when she takes pictures of the kids that goes to her photo stream and she's using iphoto and her iphoto collection is connected to her photo screen which is connected to her apple id 
but I'm using a different Apple ID and I want my picture. I want everything to be using, you know, I'm going to take my iOS 5 device and connect it to my Apple ID, not hers. But when I take pictures of my iOS device, they go to my photo stream. And now I have to, I can't see both of them on the Apple TV. I got to pick which photo stream I want. It's that division of things into different islands of content is not the fault of AirPlay, but it does manifest itself in that, for example, if you want to make the screensaver use your photo stream, you have to pick which one. You can't do it from like the pool of both of them or, or collect it all together. So I, I thought that was a very... AirPlay gets a big thumbs up, despite a, a few confusing points. And speaking of confusion, as all nerds would do, I immediately go to the settings menu in the Apple TV and find... Well, normal people don't do this, I found. If it works and it plays video, they don't touch it because they don't want to mess it up. But geeks say, okay, it works, it plays video fine, everything works, but can I screw it up somehow? So let me find the settings menu. So I immediately go into the settings menu, and ooh, here's some set, audio and video, let me go in there. One of them said television resolution, and it was on auto, and I said, no, we can't have that, because who knows, auto, who knows? <laughs> this is the thing, for auto settings, geeks want to know, what does that mean? What does auto mean? Does, is that a different than the other choices, or does that just mean the device is going to pick one of the choices for me? And if it picks, which one is it currently picking? So auto had a bunch of choices of resolution and refresh rates, and the top one was 1080p 60 hertz, and I just selected that. I said, you probably automatically selected that anyway because my television probably told you that it can handle that, but just in case you didn't, I will force you to be 1080p 60 hertz, which was the, the highest resolution and the highest refresh rate in the menu. And then I went into a menu called HDMI output, which I thought was going to have something like what I see in the PS3's output, where you can choose if you want to use extended color space that's technically outside the gamut of, of normal broadcasting, but if your television supports it, you can display it. You know, all sorts of technical stuff like that. The choices in this menu were auto, which was currently selected, YC, YCBCR, which I had to look up on Wikipedia, and I put the link in the show notes. Uh, this is a, a thing where it takes the, the luminance signal, or the luma signal, Y, and stores that and transmits it at, at you know with high quality and high resolution, and then it takes two chroma components, the color, and puts them in a bandwidth reduced uh, channel. So it's it's kind of like a form of compression where like we are going to separate the important from the less important stuff, and one of these one of these things survives compression better than the other. So we'll we'll divvy up we'll divide up the picture the, the image space into two separate color channels, CR is the red difference and CB is the blue difference. And, and that doesn't have to be, doesn't have to use as much man bandwidth, but we'll keep the luminance values on a separate higher bandwidth channel. So that struck me as something that's probably done for like CRTs or older tube things with lower bandwidth. So that's not for me. Then the next choice is RGB high. And then the one below that is RGB low. And I was guessing that RGB high was the thing where it will output a, an extended color space that technically the spec doesn't support, but your television might support. But then I was like, what does RGB low mean? So I Googled for it. All I found in my brief Googling was people saying, try the different outputs, whichever one looks better on your TV you should use, which sounds silly, but in the end is probably good advice. But unfortunately, it's not easy to tell because when you're in the menu, you're just looking at the menu, which is mostly black and has a little bit of blue and like a picture of an Apple TV. So I'd have to change the setting, watch some video, go back, change the setting, watch some video, go back, change the setting. In the end, I just left it on auto, which is sort of like admitting defeat to me. Because I don't like I had watched a program by this point. Uh, I put it in the show notes actually because I had been saving this. The the television series Awake had uh, its pilot program available for free on iTunes, maybe like a week or two ago. And I think this is a good idea because if you want to get someone hooked on a program, you're like, oh, I missed the first episode. Like my DVR didn't catch it because I didn't tell it to record it. So I set up a season pass for Awake, but it started on episode two, which I'm not going to watch until I've seen episode one. And then I said, oh, episode one 
is available free on iTunes. So I got it off iTunes. But then I couldn't watch it on my TV because I didn't have an Apple TV yet. That's the wonders of DRM for you. So here I am with this high-definition video that I could watch on my computer if I wanted to, but if we wanted to sit together on the couch and watch it, we can't, even though I have a million devices on my television that can display video. None of them understand Apple's DRM. Uh, and I had no way to show a PC's image on my television. That's the remaining thing I don't have on my TV setup, a way to show a Mac's video output on the television. Uh, so anyway, I'd watched that entire program, and it looked fine to me, and I was perfectly happy with it. Uh, and then after that, I started screwing with the settings. And in the end, I just left the HDMI output on auto. So if anyone knows what any of that stuff actually means, RGB high, RGB low, uh, feel free to tell me. So overall, I give the Apple TV a, a pretty big thumbs up. It does exactly what I thought it was going to do. It did it without problem. Uh, the AirPlay features were fun to use. They did everything that I thought they should do. The Netflix streaming worked well. Again, it probably helps that I have an Ethernet connection directly to things. So no networking problems. Uh, no crashes. Everything was pretty responsive. The only downside is that terrible little razor blade of a remote. Surprisingly positive review. I, I thought I was going to like it. Like I, The only reason I held off getting it was because I knew an, another one was undoubtedly coming with higher resolution. I didn't want to buy something that was 720. Some people argued with me about that on Twitter, saying, what do you need 1080p for? Uh, I should have put this in the show notes, but Ars Technica did an article comparing iTunes 1080p pro, uh, content with its 720p content. And the person on Twitter was saying, and this is true, uh, especially as, as compared to if you're doing 720p or 1080i. A lot of televisions do 1080i, but actually 720p has more information if you do the math on it. But the stuff Apple is selling is compressed. And he was saying if, you, if Apple would didn't so heavily compress its 720p content, there would be no reason to have 1080p or that the 1080p was so heavily compressed that they would, you'd be better off getting a 720p one that was not uh, as heavily compressed as a 1080 All that is true, but the proof is in, like if you're, if you're interested in iTunes content, the proof is in, well, so download a 1080p version of this thing on iTunes and download a 720p and which one looks better. And it may, and Apple may be wasteful and Apple, you could say they would be better off offering a higher quality 720p and not bothering with 1080i because you'd have less to download and the quality would be just as good. But I, you just got to go with that, what Apple offers. And if the 1080p content that Apple offers looks better than the 720, and you know you get them both at the same price, or, or usually you do, you get, you know, you're offered the program in HD, you get both of those choices. Uh, I'm going to pick the 1080p one. And it's like, oh, you're taking all this extra room in your hard drive. My question on Twitter is, well, what am I saving that hard drive space for? I, I just got to have spare hard drive space hanging around. I got lots of hard drive space. <laughs> Uh, so I'll download the 1080p one. I'll watch it and I'll delete it when I'm done because through the magic of iCloud, I don't have to worry about keeping it around and I certainly don't need to store it on my Apple TV. So uh, the, the Ars Technica article did screen grabs of 1080p content and compared it with screen grabs of 720. And you can see some pretty significant differences like where in the 720p content, you see that sort of banding where there's a gradient from dark gray to light gray and you see it as a band of like gray number one and then a little bit darker gray number two versus a smooth gradient on the 1080p. As a typical compression artifact. So the program I watched was still was just 720 and it looked fine to me. Uh, but if 1080p is available, I will get that. So I think that's all I've got on Apple TV. So is this a device that you'd recommend? Yeah, I, re I recommended the previous one, even though I hadn't bought it. I wouldn't I was I would tell people if you want something that plays Netflix, uh, get an Apple TV. 
And you'll go on record right now and say that the the best Netflix experience you've ever seen by far, hands down, Apple TV. No, the PlayStation 3's uh, client is better. It's the, the PlayStation 3 in general is way more responsive and faster, and it has a Bluetooth remote, and that thing, like, it's a gaming system. It just responds as soon as you hit the button. But the PlayStation 3 has a fan in it, and it's much noisier than something with no fan. So that's why I prefer the Apple TV, but I still think the PlayStation 3 Netflix client is superior. And the remote is definitely superior. Should we do our third sponsor and then talk about the video of Chris Perlow's dad? Sure. All right. Our third sponsor, final sponsor for this week, SourceBits. These guys are really great. They develop all kinds of software, but they have some specific areas that they focus on. The first one, iOS software development. But they'll do Android. They'll do, you know what, if you, if you need to do BlackBerry, there are people out there who need this. They'll do that too. They can come out with a client for any mobile platform that you have. They do web development. They'll build a web application. You can tie into these or an independent standalone. I, I had somebody say, well, do these guys just, what if you just want a web app? What if you don't care about mobile? Of course. They do that. They do user interface design. Of course, they do Mac development. And they also do Facebook development. Maybe you have an idea for a Facebook game. They do that. All of this. And they do it and they save you time and they save you money because they get it done right the first time. That's the key with these guys. They have, they have a proven track record. They've got an amazing portfolio. You're not going to waste time going back and forth with a developer who's still figuring things out. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to hit a home run, you want to walk up to bat, you want to hit a home run, you call these guys, sourcebits.com. Longtime supporter of the shows. Great bunch of people to work with, sourcebits.com. The person who was complaining to me on Twitter about the 1080p versus 720 is actually in the chat room now, and he's trying to clarify. He says, I wasn't saying it takes more room on your hard drive. I was complaining that 1080p uses more resources in general, and those resources would be much better used for less compressed 720p signal. I'm asking him what resources he's talking about. Like, I don't... And, and I, your, your argument is this. If there are resources to be used, use 100% of them all the time to improve your enjoyment. Unless they're mechanical and wear out, and it's doing something you didn't ask it to do but we've already gone over that with the TiVo. And yeah. that it's, it's already recording on all four tuners anyway, so right. it's not actually an extra work. But yeah, that's uh, for it, when it's in terms of RAM and hard drive space, uh, he points to bandwidth. Bandwidth is only a concern if you have a cap. I don't, maybe that's a luxury I, uh, you know, other people don't have. So if you have a bandwidth cap, then yeah, that's a good argument for taking the 720p version instead. CPU, I don't care about because I don't think they wear out like things with moving parts though. I should do a whole show about the idea of hardware versus software and moving parts versus non-moving parts. Although, unfortunately, that gets into the realm of physics very quickly, and then we're not supposed to talk about that. But that's one of my pet peeves. But yeah, like I said, this is all academic when it just comes down to, like, look at the content Apple offers. Does the 1080p one look better? Can you tell that it looks better? Then it's up to you to decide whether you think the bandwidth is worthwhile. I don't really care that my $99 Apple TV CPU is working harder or GPU or whatever H.264 decoder is going, you know. So, Chris Perillo's dad. Chris Perillo. I didn't know Chris Perillo was before this. Did you know who he was? Yeah, of course. No, no. He's he's a founder and maintainer of Locker Gnome, which is a network of blogs, which I've heard of Locker Gnome. I've seen the name Locker Gnome, but I have not gone to that site and I'm not really familiar with it. Uh, he apparently was on television, on tech TV, which I never really watched. True. Hosting a program called Call for Help, which I assume is some sort of helping you with technology television show. <laughs> He's 
about my age, similar similar age. And one of the things he did in this past week was sit his dad down. His dad is named Joe Perillo. Sit him down in front of a Windows 8 computer and a Mac OS X computer, both of which he'd never seen before. He'd never seen Windows 8 before, and he'd never used a Mac before, or never used a Mac with Mac OS X before. And well, one thing we should also mention is that Chris has been doing some kind of like live streaming thing. I think he's still doing it, but if if you want to, you could go and you could see him sitting at his desk where he has multiple screens and machines. You could go there, you could see him sitting there at his desk and watch him working. I'm not sure why it's not it's not like a show really it's just him like they're working and he's been doing this for a long time so his dad was sitting at if you're familiar with his setup his dad was just sitting right there at, at this setup yeah i'm not familiar with him people in the chat room are giving, are giving me flack for not knowing who he is uh, I'm, I'm i'm not surprised that you're not like a fan i'm just i'm surprised that uh, you, no. you don't know who he is but uh, so what yeah i've heard of blocker gnome though but that's it okay so he just filmed his dad trying these two things out. His dad is, I don't know how old his dad is, probably the same age as my dad, 50, 60, something like that. First of all, his dad is adorable. <laughs> He's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and a baseball hat with a propeller on it. And for people who are a similar age to Chris, he reminds us all of our dads. Uh, the second thing I want to say about this is we shouldn't, you should always be careful when you see something like this, not to extrapolate too much from one person. This is just one person doing something, one person with his own background and experiences and, and, and uh, education and computers. And it just like, it's very tempting to say, look at this guy, either successfully using or unsuccessfully using this technology product. Therefore, this product is doomed to failure, is not user friendly or is awesome. And anyone will be able to use uh, it. This is, one data point, one person. Uh, but on, on the other hand, people who have similar experiences with people of similar ages, this is a nice thing to point to to say, like, I do tech support for a big company or I help all my relatives with their computers. And all of them exhibit these particular problems. And if you want to see these problems demonstrated, look at this one guy's video because a lot of the things that he has trouble with, I've seen other people have trouble with. And then you very quickly, you know, humans are a pattern recognition machine and start to say, ah, oh, this, this is not just one person's problem. This is another data point in the long series of data points about people using computers, and I'm noticing a trend, and that trend is whatever. So I'm going to talk about the things I saw in this video. I'm no doubt will generalize and extrapolate from this video into more general concepts. Most of the time, I'm not basing those conclusions on this one video, but simply using it as an illustration of something that I've seen elsewhere. Uh, but... Yeah, no matter what, all even if you added up all of my experiences with helping people with computers, that's probably still not statistically significant. But I think some of it will ring true for people who have done similar things. Uh, now, his dad is not a technology geek, but I would say he's definitely, I don't know what you'd call him. He's a computer user. He's a regular user of computers. He talks very fondly about Windows XP, which he has seems to have a lot of experience and comfort with that he likes to use. He's got an iPhone. He's got an iPad, both of which he likes to use. He, he must have been using these things for years, XP in particular. He, he knows how to use them enough to be productive. So I'm not going to say this is someone who's never seen a computer or a computer novice. I would say that he's not a computer expert, but he's a computer user. He's you have to call, you know, if you use a computer every single day and enjoy it and have some sort of level of confidence and experience with it, that's on the upper end of customers of technology products, I think, uh, especially for someone his age. 
where you didn't grow up with these type of computers. So he, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's though, been pre-qualified. He's competent. Yeah. Like, I, I think a lot of people look at this and say, let's look how someone who has no idea about computers uses this and see how bad they are. He doesn't have no idea computers. He's, he's a pretty darn good computer user. He, the way he talks about how Windows XP, and like he, ha, he has a fondness for Windows XP. <laughs> and who has a fondness for an operating system unless you're, you know, <laughs> it, and he's got an iPhone and an iPad. That's, he's got a leg up on most people his age, I think. So I think that right away, I would not say that this, that you, anything you see in this video only applies to super duper novices because this guy is about as knowledgeable as you can expect from the average computer consumer about uh, computers. Uh, so I'm going to talk briefly about the Windows 8 video, which uh, I, I'm not going to focus on too much. He put him in front of Windows 8, which as we know has this split experience between the Metro UI and the plain desktop. And, uh, Lo and behold, he's used, he switches back to the plain desktop, feels slightly more comfortable, but then is not able to find the start menu. And he spends a lot of time looking for screen edge activation triggers and stuff. And this is what I wanted to get to before about discoverability versus ease of use. He spends a long time just not knowing what to do because there's nothing on screen to let him know what to do. He wants a button to press, a word that he can see or read or something, and things like, oh, slam your mouse cursor to the right edge of the screen. That's not obvious. That's like a gesture with the mouse, especially if he hasn't used another operating system that does things like that or hasn't used other programs that actually. It doesn't occur to him that mouse gestures or putting the mouse in the corner or clicking on a screen edge or anything like that. And forget about keyboard commands or anything like that. And as ridiculous as this might sound to people today, one of the reasons that Windows 95 was so successful is because they had a little menu at the bottom that said start. And yeah. like we laugh about the start menu. We're like, oh, what did you... But there were people who had no experience with a graphical user interface or very little. They were coming from a different place. And they, well, where do I start? Oh, right here. Yeah. And the joke, oh, you shut down from the start menu. Isn't that right. dumb? No, that's not why it said start. It said start because uh, people people are going to scan, with, especially if they don't have experience with computers. They see an image in front of them and they want to look at it and figure out something to do. And so things like screen edges are not discoverable. Uh Similarly, I would say swiping through iOS springboard screens, you know, the, th the thing where you launch all your applications, that's not discoverable to someone who's never used a capacitive touchscreen, which to a first approximation before the iPhone was nobody. Nobody had used a capacitive touchscreen. We'd use pressure-sensitive touchscreens maybe where you press on them like on a palm, and maybe we'd use those ones on ATMs where people think you have to press, but you really don't, and they jam their fingers as hard as they can to a CRT. <laughs> but... Capacitive touch screens that like, track your finger and let you do gestures and stuff. If you're staring at that iOS screen, it's very clear that these are little squares that you probably have to hit with your finger. What's not clear is if you take your finger and swipe across the whole thing, you go to the next screen. That I, I've never seen anyone who has never seen uh, an iOS device derive that on their own. But once you show people that, that's it. You show them once and like, oh, and for, they never they never forget it. It's completely natural. So the, people get harp on discoverability and. Uh, this gets back to the, the iPhoto for iOS. Discoverability, I think, is much less important than most people think it is. It's important in that people, if they hit a dead end, they can't discover anything and they stop. But if they, if they continue to use it or if there's a way for them to learn, what's much more important is how efficient is this thing to use on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So putting the word start on the start menu did not impair day-to-day -day usability, but it was a good aid to discoverability. So you want to do that. Make it as discoverable as possible, but don't favor discoverability over efficiency or ease of use after the fact. And a lot of the complaints about macOS 10 for me and other people is that it's been tailored too much to make sure things are discoverable, even if once you discover it, it's annoying from, for the hundred other times you use it after that.
So swiping on iOS, like there's not a little paperclip that comes out and says, hey, put your finger on the screen and swipe it sideways to go to the next screen. There's nothing really helping you discover screen swiping in iOS. And I don't think Apple frets about that, but like, look, you'll find out. Like you'll, you'll see an ad on TV where someone swipes their finger or your friend will show you. Or like once, once, you, once something else tells you, hey, you can swipe the screen on your iPhone, like it's very difficult to get out of an Apple store without knowing that. And it's probably difficult not to see a TV ad that shows people swiping all over the place, right? But for the very first one, you know, if you didn't see the keynote and didn't know what the iPhone was, there's nothing in the OS itself. If you gave this to someone who was on a tropical island in the Pacific who had never seen technology and gave them this phone, it, it wouldn't be obvious for them to figure out swiping, right? But once you discover it, it's awesome, perfect. And you're glad there's not some sort of handle to grab to swipe to the next screen or some sort of word that says swipe to go to the next screen. And you have to <laughs> stare at that stupid word saying swipe to go to the next screen for the rest of your damn life. Uh, so iPhoto for iOS and Windows 8, both, I think, when you discover how to use these tools, then you can judge them, you know, based on the merits of how they work. So there's a two-finger loop zooming tool in, in iPhoto, which I totally did not discover. But I don't slam it because I didn't discover it. I slam it because once I've discovered it, I find it awkward to use. And similarly, the screen edge stuff for getting back to the Metro UI and not having a smart menu, I think once you know about the screen edge activation, then you should forget that you couldn't find it mostly. And say, well, they could have helped discoverability a little bit, but once I find it, is it efficient to use? Now, I personally find screen edges and screen corners very efficient because they're really easy targets to hit, and I find it a natural sort of gesture with a mouse or whatever. But that may not be true for the general population. But that's the one point I wanted to make on the, on the Windows 8 video is that the joke, quote-unquote, of watching him flail there by staring at the screen. He's, you know, he's trying to look through the bottom part of his bifocals, try to read every single piece of text on the screen and say, where can I possibly click? The fact that he doesn't know about screen edges or, or mouse gestures or anything like that or, or you know keyboard equivalents or other things don't have a visual representation. I don't fault Windows 8 for that. You know, I think if Windows 8 becomes popular, people will learn this gesture just as like once you learn swiping on the springboard screen, then you don't have to relearn it for 50 other apps. Now, part of your vocabulary when trying to figure out how to use an iOS app is to be swiping stuff around. Uh, why didn't I discover how to change the palette from one side to the other on iPhoto for iOS? Because that wasn't swiping to change screens. That was like grabbing an on-screen element and moving it, and not by a grab handle, but by some grand gesture. And I had never used an, an application that had done that before. And in general, I think that's not as successful because it's not obvious where you can start to grab and where you can stop. And if you just do a swipe anywhere in iPhoto, it doesn't, doesn't do it all the time. You have to do it in a certain way with a certain pattern. So even if after you discover it, like now I know how to move the 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 thumbnail pictures from one side to the other and iPhoto for iOS, I still can't pull it off successfully most of the time and it doesn't feel good. That's that's a bad gesture, but not because I didn't discover it until I watched the video. So the much more interesting one to me anyway, sorry Windows people, is that he uh, Chris Brill put his dad in front of Mac OS X. And as we said, he's a big Windows XP user, big PC user, but on the other hand, he owns an iPad and iPhone and likes them, right? But he's never, never used a Mac. Uh, by the way, there's, there's YouTube videos for these, and they're both in the show notes. But if you just search for Chris Perillo's dad, you will probably find them. Uh, so here he is in front of Mac OS X. Now, I, we've just gone through saying that he's definitely a productive computer user. Surely he hasn't been using Windows XP for all these years and liking it and still not been getting anything done. And we presume that he's using the iPhone and he's able to make phone calls and use it the way it's supposed to be used, and he uses the iPad and likes it. Presumably he's being productive, right? I think this Mac OS X video, more than the Windows one, shows that to use a computer and be productive with it is not the same thing as understanding it. 
far from it. And people just assume, like, oh, can you read email? Can you use the web? Can you do all this stuff? They're like, oh, well, then you know about computers. No. That just means you know how to read email, use the web, and get that stuff done, which is fine. But making the leap as a software developer, someone designing software, that, oh, the people who are productive with computers understand them um, is, is not a good idea. And I'm not even talking about the techie details like they understand uh, the PN junction transistors or they understand <laughs> the data buses or anything. Like, not even technical stuff. I'm saying they don't understand cons- broad, really big conceptual things about the computer that you would assume they understand because they're so successful using a computer to send email and share pictures of the kids and do, do things, do complicated tasks with the computer. They are missing foundational concepts that underlie the entire computer. And you notice they're missing when you put something in front of them that's not familiar. Uh, the best example from this video is, so uh, he's put in front of Mac OS X, which he's never seen before, but he has lots of experience with, uh, with Windows XP and with iOS devices. What he's looking for when he's looking around on this computer, uh, one of his main concerns is he wants to get to the Google homepage, right? Uh, and we'll get to that long sad path to try to get to the Google home first, homepage first. Uh, but what he doesn't understand, what's clear that he doesn't understand, is that he doesn't know what a web browser is, or what Google is, or what a search engine is. Like, conceptually, not specifically what a specific web browser, he doesn't know what a web browser is as a concept. Right? And he's not alone in that. I remember a couple of years ago when I found this link for the show notes, Google, when it was launching Chrome, did a kind of a man-on-the-street video where they run around to people and says, what, what's a browser or what's a web browser? And I put this link in the show notes. Yeah, I remember that one. A long series of going to people on the street and asking them what a web browser is. And obviously this video is going to be biased because they're only going to show the people who don't know. But for people listening to this program who probably assume, okay, so maybe you don't know how to use a web browser. Maybe you don't know that Safari is the web browser on the Mac. But surely you understand the concept of a thing called a web browser. No, no. Most people do not understand what a web browser is conceptually, and I think this video will demonstrates that it's not hard to find tons and tons of people who have no idea what it is. So when, uh, when Joe Perillo was looking around, he sees Safari, which he's familiar with because the icon and the name are the same as they are on iOS devices, right? But he still doesn't know what it is. He says, uh, uh, Safari, he's talking to the, the camera, and sometimes he's talking with confidence because he has so much experience with these iOS devices, so he'll confidently say things like, uh, Safari is just another kind of Google. And he says, oh, and the Safari, that, uh, he says Safari is Apple's Google. Try to parse that one if you're, <laughs> if you're a tech nerd. That shows just a complete, <laughs> a complete lack of conceptual understanding of what these things are. Uh, because you don't need to know what's a web browser, what's an operating system, what is a search engine, uh, how does the web work, where does the software that make Google, Google stuff run work. You, know, just, you don't need to know that to be productive and use it. But we just all assume that people who are able to use this stuff do know this stuff. They don't. They don't know what an application is, what a search engine is, what the web is, what a web server is, what a web browser is. Uh, so Google did, as part of the same PR push, they have an entire website that explains, that Google tries to explain what a web browser is. And of course, they promote Chrome. It's, it's all about promoting their web browser. So the video starts, the one explaining says, the most important program on your computer is your web browser. Which A, well, surprise, Google would say that, that the most important program is your web browser because they're a web company. And B, I love that their very first sentence assumes you know what a program is, which I wouldn't, you know, that is the most important program. They don't say application, they say program, but who the hell knows what a program is? 
I bet if you ask people what's a computer program, they it would be just as depressing as a video about what's a browser. Yeah. Yeah. And even in the video, they say things like, you get to your web browser by clicking on its icon. I'm just shaking my head at that. Like, that assumes, assumes facts, not in evidence. <laughs> you know, there are icons, there's clicking, there's what? I don't, you know. So I... And again, again, listen, I mean, we talk about our kids uh, and and how they use iOS devices so easily compared to computer devices. Like my son understands that you've got to put your fingers on the trackpad and that moving them on the trackpad makes the cursor move on the screen and that you have to, you have to, but for him, it's, it's clearly a bunch of, he, he asked me the other day, well, why can't you just touch the screen? Yeah. I said, well, that's the way the computer works. Oh. Why that, that? Why does it work like that? You know, like, like this was, you know, clearly I'm like using it. Like even in his mind, he understands that there is a different mode of working there. And it's, it's just fundamentally interesting. I've told this story before. I don't know if we've talked about it. A friend of mine, he's a software developer. He's like a CTO. And his wife, the way that she worked uh, on her computer when she would use it, Everything w- would happen in Google. She'd launch Firefox. Firefox was set to have Google as the page. For her to go to a website, she would search for it in Google. This is how she functioned. Google homepage would come up in the little search box. She would type, even if frequently typing the domain that she wanted. So let's say she wanted to do some shopping at Pottery Barn. She'd go fire up Firefox. It would come up in the Google search bar. She would type Pottery Barn. Maybe she would type PotteryBarn.com. And the search results would come back and she would read them, find Pottery Barn, click Pottery Barn. And although he had explained to her that she could just type it in the menu bar, this was more comfortable for her. And that's how she, and I've seen so many people do this, that it really just shows you that for them, the the web browser is a way to get to content, but that's not, you don't, you don't type into the web browser, you search for things, you find things and at the end of the day, it's about getting information. It almost sounds like what the, this guy, when he was uh, Chris Perla's dad, when he when he was saying that Safari is Apple's Google, that for him it that that means it's a presentation layer for how you find things. Yeah, it's, I believe at one point in the video, he typed the word Google into the Google search box to get to Google, and we've all seen people do this. <laughs> yeah. I think to get to Google, they type Google in the Google search box as part of their browser's UI or right. like the Omni bar, the address bar, right? right. Yeah, KJ Hill in the chat room says he sees college students do this all the time. Really? Very smart, educated people who use computers all the time. So this is a very complex issue. So he his goal is to get to something familiar. So he wants to get to Google, or the Google as he calls it, which is awesome. It's like the MTV. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's looking for something familiar in his interface. And since he has such vast experience with iOS, a lot of the icons that are in the default dock, I think, I think this was just a default configuration for the most part of this Mac because it wasn't all customized. A lot of those icons and the names are, are familiar to him. And by the way, he figures out that that's a dock probably because he's heard the name dock before and it's the only thing on the screen that looks vaguely dock-like. Right? So he sees, uh, sometimes without even launching them, he assumes they're just like the iOS thing. So it's like uh, one, of the, one of the times he said, oh, I know what that one is. So I loaded it on, uh, that's, that's iPhoto, that's new. Because there had just been the announcement of the new iPads and they did the demo of the iPhoto video. So he's so plugged into tech that he knew that there was an Apple event. He knew the new version of iOS, iPhoto for iOS was out. He didn't, doesn't know what iOS is probably and doesn't know that iPhoto for iOS is, you know, or any of those details, but he knows that this is new. So when he sees iPhoto in the Mac stock, he's like, that's new. He doesn't know that that 
that iPhoto program has almost no relation to the one that was demonstrated and just released. He doesn't know that program. iPhoto has been around for years, right? And he just moves on to the next one. Photo Booth. He goes, yeah, I got that app. A lot of these are direct quotes. Yeah, I got that app, he says about Photo Booth. Because Photo Booth is in iOS devices. Photo Booth on the Mac, it looks and works kind of the same as Photo Booth on the thing, but he's he's not making a distinction between these applications on iOS and these applications on the Mac. He actually launches the Calendar app, and the Calendar app actually does look like the iOS version. He says, yeah, this is just kind of an expanded version of the Calendar. I guess it's bigger here when you're on the computer instead of on iOS. Again, not really drawing a distinction between the two things. And seeing these familiar names and icons and sometimes familiar UIs boosts his confidence. So when he gets to Address Book, he says, this is a quote from Address books, that's probably all your contacts. Well, not probably. That is all your contacts, I'm sure. He's totally sure without even launching this program on a computer he's never seen before the address book application is where his contacts are. Hmm. Because the icon looks the same, because the name looks the same. And I bet when he launches it, he expected it to look like what it looks like on the iOS thing. And lo and behold, he was online. If he had launched it, it would have looked a heck of a lot like the one on iOS. This is a, a good example of the, the halo effect uh, in action here. Because he's... Never used the Mac before in his life, but already he, see, he finds things that make him comfortable in the environment, even if it's just a name or an icon or the look of an application, despite the fact that him figuring out how to add an event to the calendar, you know, would probably be very different than doing it in iOS. It's, it's just a level of comfort that he gets from seeing these familiar items. And what he says, this is great, another instance of him. He says, Apple or Mac or whoever did a good job of training me as he's saying basically because he'd use iOS devices, he's saying that whatever that company is that makes these devices, if that company's called Apple or Mac, and I just love it when people call Apple Mac. It, it blows my mind that even after all these years, the, the, the presence of Mac as a product and Apple as a company is still completely unclear in the minds of, of most people. That, you know, that Apple is a company and Mac is a product, especially with the iPhone and the iPod. iPod is clearly a product. I don't think people say iPod made that, but they always say Mac made that. And you anyway. know what's interesting, John, is that I don't hear people making this mistake outside of computers quite as often. Yeah, it's, it seems it's to probably, be a specific, specific to computers kind of a problem. Yeah, like where the it's probably for people who are old enough, like he definitely is, to remember the Mac PC wars that was always Mac versus PC. It wasn't Apple versus PC yeah. or even Apple versus Microsoft. So Mac becomes a company. But but he notes he has a, a moment of self-realization that all this time he spent using iOS devices has trained him to understand the visual language of, right. of Mac OS X. And he says it's kind of the same thing on the desktop as on this thing. Consistency. He notes that consistency is, is something that he's noticing between these interfaces. Even though Mac OS X looks almost nothing like iOS. It's got windows and a menu bar for crying out loud and the dock and all that stuff. It's not that it looks, it doesn't look the same, doesn't behave the same, uses different user input, but it's the visual design language of Apple's products. Even if it's just down to like the style of the icons. Are they photorealistic? Are they cartoony? How is that dock drawn? Is it like a shiny thing or is it like, you know, does it look like plain and flat like Metro UI does? That visual language makes, gives him something to anchor onto, even if the details are different. And uh, he says, looking at the dock, it didn't have to search for the stuff in the dock. Uh, saying he didn't have to search for it, it was just right there in front of them. This this reinforces the idea that if it's not on the dock, it doesn't exist. Because he spends a long time, maybe 15 minutes, pondering what's in the dock. Never thinking, because he's got no finder windows open, right? It's just the dock and an empty screen with the desktop background. Never pondering the fact that there could be things on this computer that are not in the dock. Because how the heck would you get to them? You think he's going to go 
like the hard drives aren't mounted to the desktop by default. You think he's going to go to the Go menu and go to Computer and find the Applications folder and open it and open it? No, he has no idea that exists. He never finds it in this program. He just looks at the doc. Uh, and that's why before Lion, there was such a steep drop-off because it was like, if it's not in the doc, then what do you do? Then you got to understand the finder and forget about that. We've already talked about understanding the file system, quote-unquote, understanding the, the, the file hierarchy. Nothing that's not in the doc doesn't exist. But eventually, eventually, he finds Launchpad which is in the doc by default. And that, as I said in my line review, tries to bridge this gap between things that are in the doc and things that are on your computer but not in the doc. And if you told people that, well, once it's not in the doc, you have to navigate the finder to find your applications. Oh, some stuff might be in the utilities folder. And it's just, that's, that's way too much. So he clicks on Launchpad. He doesn't know what it's going to do. He says it's called Launchpad. It's got a rocket, and he thinks it'll have to do with launching applications. He's right. What appears on the screen is tons of applications, and he, and he pretty much correctly surmises, this must, these must be all the applications that are on this computer here. And here's iMovie. He sees another one that he recognizes. Where does he recognize it from? From, from PR literature or from iMovie and iOS. Uh, so this, I think, was a demonstration of the success of Launchpad, that there was just no way this guy was going to discover on his own how to navigate to the Finder to get to the Applications folder. And even if he did, I think he would find it confusing. But something called Launchpad, in the thing by default, which I, and I said in my line review, none of us are ever going to use it. We're all going to use Quicksilver, or have, we already have existing methods of launching stuff. But for novice people, Launchpad is a very, very important feature. And this is why John Gruber was always saying that he thought that Apple would like Launchpad to be the default interface and not have the Finder at all. And there's definitely something behind that because imagine if this guy didn't have to find Launchpad, but the whole screen was like springboard. He would have had a lot, you know, it would have been more welcoming for him because just because he's so familiar with it from iOS. And as long as they didn't actually take away the finder, then the rest of us wouldn't scream bloody murder. Uh, it's interesting. I, I think also when he saw Launchpad, he says, these must be all the applications that are on this computer here. And then he kind of backpedals and says, all this stuff is not only here, but probably on his MacBook and, and iPad, too. Like, he was talking about his son's stuff. Like, yeah. his idea was that these icons he was seeing weren't necessarily representative of what was on this physical computer, but they were probably applications that were on all of his son's stuff. So he was probably seeing every application inst installed on his iPad, on his MacBook Pro, and all these other computers that he knew by name that, that his son owns. Such amazing faith in the cloud that somehow we had, you know, that, that now we're back into the world of X-Windows network transparency. Sorry. I should not call it X-Windows. You know, people who are listening to this program don't tell me I shouldn't no, call it the that. The X-Windows system. Please. That's right. Please. Or I think X-11 is. Is X-11 acceptable too? X-11RC3 would yeah. be acceptable. The X-Windows system, yes. But he, this cloud stuff has got him so confused that now he's, jumped, he's jumping the gun and he's saying... There are no barriers. I'm looking at I'm looking at applications <laughs> across CPU architectures. He doesn't know any of this across across CPU architectures across physical machines, all transparently accessible to me. Uh, but the, the most important thing to this and this whole demo video demonstrates, he continues to make no differentiation whatsoever between Mac and iOS applications. Apple is basically iOS to this person because that's how he and I think to most people that many more people use iOS devices than use Macs. Apple basically is the iOS company. No differentiation is made between a Mac application and an iOS application. So he just assumes his iPad applications could appear on this screen and they would be available and launchable. I, he doesn't give the thought of like, well, how the hell would that work? Would I stab the screen with my finger? I mean, I've got a mouse here. It's totally different. So that was definitely a, an eye-opener that, that that distinction, which is so clear to us, <laughs> was not important to him. And so that someday, if Apple ever does merge these things together or not merge them but like 
it, they're moving towards the point where all the applications are transparent and iOS applications, Mac applications start looking more like iOS applications and you can, you know, have a device that can run both of them or whatever. This guy's already there. He's way ahead of Apple. He's like, well, what, why do I care the difference between a Mac app and, and, and an iOS app? I just want to use the application. Oh, and of course, he double clicks the Evernote application to launch it. You know, they he'll, if you have a mouse in your hand, double click everything. I think we've all seen this one as well. Uh, but the thing is, the thing about double clicking, the reason it doesn't go away, people double click links in their web browser, people double click things in the dock, double click things in Launchpad, is because it works. Like the first click registers, the second click does nothing, and their application launches. And they say, now my, my choice has been reinforced. I double clicked, it opened, the end. And that's from people who've been around the block a while, because he's used computers long before iOS or anything came along, and you had to double-click to open. That was the whole language of the Mac. Double-click, launch application. Windows adopted it exactly the same. Double-click, open a folder, double-click, launch application. Right. So, if you see it, double-click it. If you've got a mouse in your hand, double-click it. It's like put a bird on it. For computers. You know about put a bird on it? Everyone knows about that, right? Enlighten us. No, come on, you don't know about put a bird on it? I'm not going to explain it to you. All right, then. I'll make sense. No, it's from the, the, the television show Portlandia. Just Google for Portlandia, put a bird on it. You'll find it. I've never seen that show. I've just watched a few episodes of it. So, eventually he does find the Google. He ends up in Safari, <laughs> which he recognizes as a web browser. He, he gets stuck in like Google Plus for a while. I think he tries to click the Google logo a few times, which doesn't take you to the Google search page. Uh, but he wants he wants to get to you know the Google homepage. Just imagine Google. though, imagine yep. for Sorry. a minute, John. Imagine for a minute, and for all of uh, those who are listening, if you didn't have the tool that we all take for granted, the address bar, if that was gone and you didn't know it was there, like maybe you saw it, but that wasn't for you. Imagine how would you get around if you couldn't get to that Google page? If you couldn't make the, how do you get that thing up on the screen? I don't know. It's like that game where you try to go from one Wikipedia page to, to the other in the fewest number of clicks, right? <laughs> right. You just had to build this chain. And unfortunately, with the internet, the, the only thing that's easily chainable to in a few number of links is porn. <laughs> if you want to get to a specific okay. site, it's a little bit more difficult. Because yeah. who links to Google.com? How many links are there for that? Not many. But he eventually gets there. And I think the great thing about him getting there, as soon as that page loads, he's like, ah, there it is. What was actually on that page was one of those crazy Google logos because they changed their logo for holidays and stuff like that. It didn't say Google in the Google font with the colors and everything. It was some other crazy logo. But he had no trouble recognizing that that was the Google homepage, despite the fact that if you were give like an image recognition program, say, are these two images the same? It would have said no, because like this one has, you know, Google written in green and yellow and red letters. And this one has some crazy tire that's vaguely in a G shape. That's something, you know, because he knows Google changes this logo a lot. And had no trouble recognizing the Google homepage. Uh, and this reminded me of the uh, Tog on Interface book that I quoted in my line review uh, that emphasizes that things don't have to look exactly the same. They just need to be recognizable. And the Google homepage did not look the same as the Google homepage on the, on the previous day or the next day when they changed the logo around. But he recognized it. So you don't need... Like, the same thing with the iOS icons. The iOS icon for iPhoto doesn't look the same as the Mac one for iPhoto. But he immediately recognized it as iPhoto. I mean, yeah, it says the word iPhoto if your mouse is over it too. But like, even looking in, in the launch pad, he wasn't mousing over them to recognize, recognize these things. He, he, oh, that's the iPhoto icon. There's, there's a familiar, a family resemblance, let's call it, between these things. Uh, I think Apple leverages that much more than people 
think they do because they're like, oh, they made a new icon for it or whatever. But, but it's the same icon as far as people who are not interested in details and are not tech nerds are concerned. Uh, and once he finds it, he doesn't want to have to go through that again because this is an ordeal to get to the Google homepage without the ability to use the address bar or any knowledge that exists. Right? So he wants to do something so he doesn't have to do that again. And he immediately says, I want to put, I want to put that down there. He points, you know, like the doc. He wants to put the Google homepage in the doc because this is someplace he wants to go immediately and why not put it in the doc, right? Now, Safari is already in the doc. And Safari, as he says, he says, Safari, I know it's the same type of thing, but I'm just used to the Google. So he, he doesn't want Safari, he wants Google, despite the fact that he's loading Safari in Google again, not knowing what a web browser is, right? Having seen his progress so far, can you imagine trying to explain to him how to get a bookmark into the doc? Mm. I bet a lot of tech nerds don't know that. It's like, well, bookmarks, they just exist in, in the menus in my web browser, but how do I get a physical file representation? You know, what is a weblock file? And who knows about that stuff? Not a lot of people. And getting that into the doc, that means you'd have to put it in the file system somewhere and then drag it from wherever you put it in the, you know, in the finder, drag it onto the doc. That is a task I would not like to see. What he ends up doing at one point, though, is he's got the Google on his screen. He's basically got Google.com loaded in Safari. He minimizes the window. And the window goes into the dock. And he's like, okay, that window went there. That is, that's my go-to example, and it was beautiful to see it demonstrated. My go-to example when people say, all this stupid eye candy, whizzy effects you know, stuff that Apple does, especially when Aqua was first coming out, like, oh, the genie effect. No, that's such BS. Why are they wasting my CPU cycles on that? I don't need that stuff. It's just a stupid toy computer. Just get the thing done. I don't need to see it squeeze into the dock. It's dumb. And I've always said that, yeah, it's fine to rail against superfluous visual effects, and certainly I turn off tons of them, but the genie effects, which was the highlight flagship introduction to Aqua visual effect that everyone oohed and odd about when Mac OS X was introduced, or at least Mac users did because no one else was watching, uh, that effect serves an incredibly important purpose, which is to tell you where your window went. And here's this guy who minimizes the window for the first time his entire life, and he knows just where it went. Why does he know where it went? Because he saw it pour into there. He knows mm-hmm. exactly where it is. Right. It is not, it's not there for its health. That's exactly the reason the genie effect is there. Because if it had just blinked away or gone real fast, the smooth animation let him see where it went. He didn't even bat an eye. He's like, okay, so that's there. So now I have that if I want it again. And at some point, he like opened it up again and it came back. He's completely comfortable with it. I want to have Google.com so I can find it. Let me just put it over there. Oh, I see where it went when I hit that button. Now I know where to find it. Uh, a great demonstration of that. But before he does that, when he's trying to save Google, he tries to go into like the bookmarking type of thing. So he's mousing over stuff and he ends up finding a reading list and he ends up activating that. A reading list is Apple's sort of Instapaper clone slash competitor thing where you can save things for reading later. Uh, and it's built into Safari. And so he ends up, uh, I don't know how he ends up clicking up because you can't see a screen that much, but it says add to your reading list. And he says, there's another quote from him. Not quite sure what that means, but I want it, so I'm going to add to that. <laughs> so he doesn't know what reading list is, but he wants to save this thing, so he's going to say okay. So he's pretty brave for a computer user. He's you know, just going to plow ahead, reading list, whatever. And so what happens when you add to reading list is there's an animation that shows like the fave icon or something, like jumping from where it was, and it sort of jumps into the upper left corner. It jumps into where the eyeglass icon would be, I think it's supposed to be jumping into, in the, in the Safari bookmark bar. And This is what he says. He says, okay, so I put it somewhere. I saw a little gizmo jump, so maybe it's in this thing. So he kind of saw, like, that animation is not as successful as the the doc one because you you can't tell where it's landing, right? But he kind of saw where it went, like the idea that 
if you want to see this thing again, click on the thing where that animated little thing ended up. And he ends up missing it. I think he ends up in like the bookmark thing. He didn't hit the glasses. He hit the little thing that looks like an open book. Uh, so it wasn't that successful, but at least it gave him a clue. Like that, you know, just having an animation is not sufficient. Animations can be misleading. I think that animation is too fast and it's not clear where it went. Maybe if it highlighted where it landed or something like that. Uh, but to let people know the effects of their actions, this was way better than nothing. Because if he had said, add to reading list, okay, and the dialogue had just gone away, then he's like, all right, where the hell is that? At least this gave him a fighting chance, you know? He, he spent the rest of the time like looking through all the applications in the doc. So mail, that app, he looked at that. He says, I'm not sure what mail we get. Probably Gmail. And he says, I, I, I'm sure all I'd have to do is put in my username and password and it'll probably take me to Gmail. Because he launches mail and does that, that, that setup thing. Right. And he assumes that in the setup thing, if he was merely to enter his username and password for Google, then he'd be able to get his Gmail. This is kind of a dangerous thing where people just, you know, he has some preconceived notions about mail and mail to him means Gmail because that's what he uses. And he was perfectly willing to type his Gmail username and password into a completely unknown dialog box in an application that he's never seen before because it said the word mail on it. And, you know, who knows if you would, you know, it'd be unsuccessful because he would not be setting up a Gmail account or this is a username and password for something else. People will type their username and password into almost anything. Uh, and it shows that web properties like Google just take such incredible ownership of people's minds. Like the internet. And everything associated with it is Google. Email to him is Gmail. It's like, I got to get on the Google. I got to get to my Gmail. Anything that has to do with mail is clearly only Gmail because that's what mail is to me. And I think these the web things take such ownership of people's minds because they're, they're everywhere. They're omnipresent and they're very consistent. So he could probably use his Gmail from his iOS devices. He can use it from his phone. He can use it from his PC. And it's the one thing probably in his computing life that has been the most constant over the years that he's used Gmail. Same thing with Google. You can get to the Google anywhere. You can get to the Gmail anywhere. And even though these devices change and the interfaces change and all the stuff that's around them changes, that stuff is consistent. So it completely owns this guy's mind. He is totally in the bag for Google. It shows the incredible power of web properties. Also because there's only a few basic things you have to know to use the web. Like you don't, there's not the vocabulary of things you can do on the web. There's, there's links, you click on them. There's a back button. That's pretty much all you need to know to do almost anything on the web. Uh, and he's leveraged that ability to uh, make Google a big part of his life. He recognizes the App Store. Again, doesn't differentiate between the iOS and the Mac Store, but here's the App Store. Not here is the Mac App Store. I think he would have been this is uh, very surprised if he spent this entire time using the computer and did not find the App Store. But he's like, where's the App Store? Like, if there was no Mac App Store. This is another instance where I think customers were actually ahead of Apple. All of us nerds were like, on the fence about, oh, is there going to be an app store for the Mac? Once the app store came out, wait until they have an app store for the Mac. It's going to be doom. Apple has to approve all your applications. Oh, no, they'll never do the app store for the Mac. Macs are PCs. They have to be general purpose computers. You can't do use approval process or whatever. And then when the Mac app store came out, there was all this hemming and hawing. But for this guy, for there not to be the app store, not a app store, but the app store on the Mac, they're like, why would Apple not have, isn't Apple the, the you know, isn't this the app store company? If the app store wasn't there, it would be shocking to him probably. Uh, so for all of us thinking we're like, we're technology nerds and we're futurists and we're thinking ahead in the future. This guy's already ahead of all of us. He's, he's saying applications. I don't care where they live. I just want to use them store. There should just be a store where I buy stuff. I don't care what platform it is. I, you know, why should the Mac not have, of course it has an app store. It's the app store. It's everywhere. Uh, he, he activated mission control at one point and that was kind of confusing to him because there was no apps open, but eventually he got to dashboard and figured out how that worked. And he liked all that. That was interesting to see. Uh, 
some other funny bits from random parts in the thing. At one point, he finds the window close box. I think his son prompted him in a few cases to, to try to figure out how you close the window. And he finds the, the close button because it has an X on it. And he is familiar with that visual language from, from Windows with the X of closing things. And he offers his speculation on why the closed box is in the upper left corner instead of the correct place, which, as we all know, is in the upper right-hand corner. <laughs> Windows XP user. Right. And he says, oh, that's probably there because of copyright. Like that, that Apple would have loved to have put the closed box in the upper right-hand corner, but they weren't allowed to because of some legal thing. Mm-hmm. They couldn't put it in the normal place for legal reasons. Nick, great. But it's, he does. He does have a very inquisitive, inquiring mind. He he thinks things through, yeah, even even though the conclusions he comes up with might not be right. Well, that's influenced by like he probably lived through like the lawsuits, the look yeah. and feel lawsuit. He may not know what the look and feel lawsuit is, but maybe he remembers something about legal stuff and something about you know pictures on computer screens or just the, the concept that someone might not be able to put a control in a familiar place for legal reasons. I think it's a sad comment on our legal system that we just assume, he he assumes that the legal system is so awful that something simple and obvious like putting a button in the upper right corner instead of the upper left corner could be prevented by the law, which depresses me because A, I know that's actually true, and B, the fact that everybody knows it's true, that we're just in this horrible broken system and it's not a secret to anybody. Very, very sad. Uh, he complains about the EULA, the end user license agreement that appears when he launches iTunes, which, by the way, he hates iTunes. He hates iTunes because I think I, I'm surmising that he hates iTunes because that's the place where sync happens. And sync is a complicated thing that normal people don't understand and that rarely works correctly and is very hard to implement. And it's even very difficult for people to debug, even computer experts. So iTunes is the home of his suffering. And he doesn't like iTunes. And when he launches it, it brings it to big EULA. And he, he takes the time to do an aside and says right away, see, look at this thing here. They give you so many pages. Nobody can read this. Unless you're a lawyer, you have no idea what it means. Uh, even non-nerds know that, uh, you know, even non-tech nerds know where they're being screwed by lawyers. And the answer, because that's common phenomenon outside the tech world. Anytime you see a giant wall of text that wants you to agree with it, it's written illegally as you are being screwed. He knows it. I know it. Everybody knows it. But what he says is, and this is a quote, Bottom line is, if you decline it, you can't do whatever it is you're trying to do. So you have to agree. There really is no choice. Basically, basically what he's saying is if you don't click agree, the program doesn't open. He's learned long since learned that. So he didn't read it. He blindly clicks agree and continues on his way. We all hate Eula's. Chris Perlis' dad hates them too. Uh, and, and the other thing is, like, because even though he was so familiar with this environment from his experience with iOS, he still... Like this, this comes from not knowing the concepts and not having the vocabulary. But at one point, he's talking about the thing on the screen, and he says to his son, "Do they call them Windows?" Like he wants to know if, on Mac, as he would say, the things on the screen are called Windows, or if there's a different terminology. Like he doesn't recognize Windows as a generic term for a region on the screen that you can move around. Right? Windows is a brand name, and things in Windows are Windows. But what what do you call these things on the Mac? Do they call them Windows here? That's crazy. Was, I, I could not believe when I heard like you would think you would think there's there's got to be some general vocabulary that people know from computers so they understand they understand what a window is and that that's a generic term. But he asked the question: Do they call them? Maybe they call them something else. Maybe they call them like apple fritters. I don't know what they're going to call them. Maybe they call them, <laughs> maybe they call them seeds. Is there some sort of Apple-based analogy for it? Do they call them Windows? Yeah, they're called Windows. Well, and you know what? What's actually interesting about that to me, not, I, I know you're not attacking the guy, but almost in, in his defense, he wants to use the right terminology 
for the right thing. He said it might not be called this. And who knows why? Maybe it's a copyright thing there. What do they call them? He at least understands that it might be something different. Well, yeah, but that's that's the foreignness of, of yeah. the other thing. Like when you don't have any foundational, fundamental understanding of like the concepts that underlie these things. When you're shown one that's not familiar, you have no, there's like nothing beneath you. It's like up could be down, black could be white, you know? <laughs> right. And so he's able to latch on the visual similarities and feel comfortable when he sees things are the same, but there's no windows on iOS, right? So he doesn't know if those are the same. And there's like, if you, if you go down in his windows knowledge, there's nothing underneath him. It's just, he knows windows, but has not generalized from windows to the concept of a desktop operating system or the concepts that it offers. Right. Although, he's, he's looking at it as specific things in windows. This is what you do. And here on this other system, which by the way, is also a computer. You do things this other way, as opposed to saying they're both approaching the concept of a window and there are different implementation details. And the, some things he takes completely for granted. He never asks about scrolling, but he scrolls like crazy. And he, I think he mentions that the, the scroll wheel is smaller on what I'm assuming he's using a magic mouse. He must have the little, the little uh, ball little yeah. track ball in there. Uh, and he says, I actually like this one better. And then he says, oops, did I say that? Because he's still in the Mac PC mindset that he can't admit that he likes Macs better because it's like the us versus them, you know, right. Chevy versus Ford, or, uh, <laughs> Yankees versus Red Sox, <laughs> Mac versus PC. Right. He's, he's kind of an anachronism in that regard, like us. Uh, and, but, but again, he scrolls like crazy and never says, is that a scroll bar? Is that how that works? And that's because like scroll wheels are probably not discoverable. If you don't know what a little thing is sticking out of a mouse, you might not touch it because you'd be afraid to break something. But once you discover how a scroll wheel works, no one had to show him how to use the scroll ball. No one had to show him how to scroll. There's a window. I bet I didn't even couldn't even tell if the scroll bars were visible. Maybe the scroll bars were even invisible. But he's just scroll like scrolling like crazy. Never questions it. So he does have some sort of foundational conceptual knowledge, but it's so low level that he doesn't even know it exists. So he never thinks to question it. Uh, so the conclusions here. Let's wrap this up. The conclusions that, that he comes to, his son asks him, so, you know, here's your first time using a Mac, what do you think? He says he thinks the Mac is doing a better job with consistency. And that was the old rallying cry of the Mac and the Mac PC days, speaking of which, people say, oh, when all Windows applications behave differently, but Mac's rigorous human interface guidelines dictate that Mac apps have to work sort of the same, and if you right. run one Mac app, you can reuse that knowledge to, to use other ones, whereas Windows apps were doing all sorts of crazy things, and you'd have like a, a Windows app that had like DOS keyboard commands, you needed to use the function keys, and everyone was doing something differently, and even Microsoft would do its menus differently in every version of Microsoft Office, so consistency. But what he means by consistency is looks like iOS. He doesn't mean that the Mac is consistent in itself. Consistency means this looks like iOS. So for everyone who's, who's griping about, you know, why are they making all these Mac applications look like iOS applications? It's so horrible that making the applications work. That, you know, there are bad things about that. And I complain about it too. But the obvious good thing is that people who use iOS devices, of which there are many, many millions and growing all the time, like it when they go to a Mac and stuff looks the same. Even if it doesn't behave the same, even if the icons are technically different, it's not the exact same icon, even if the names are changed, address book versus context, even like the icon is the same. Consistency means looks like iOS as far as the general public is concerned. Uh, he mentions that even though he loves XP, he was forced to get Windows 7 because they don't sell XP anymore. And he's kind of in a transitional period with Microsoft where they're trying to get off their legacy OS onto their new interface. And so Windows 7 and 8 are scary and unfamiliar to him. And if he wasn't forced to use them, he'd still be using XP if he could. So he's kind of like set in his ways and comfortable with XP and doesn't see any reason to change. And that's the challenge for Microsoft is to get those guys onto Metro and make them feel comfortable with this. And it's the opportunity for Apple to say, look, if you're going to be uncomfortable anyway, why not be uncomfortable in this other thing? And hey, at least this other thing reminds you of iOS, which you, if you, you like and, you know. So 
I think Apple has a strong play for getting Joe Perillo over to their camp if they chose to do that. That's just dispatch a team. Uh, he said he'd like to learn numbers, which was puzzling to me. Uh, he was an accountant, apparently. And I'm sure he already knows Excel because I think he mentioned it at some point. For anyone who knows about Excel and numbers, like this, there's nothing in numbers that you need to go check out because it's some revolution. It's, it's a pretty basic spreadsheet. And maybe it's a little bit easier to use Excel for someone who's never used a spreadsheet before. But if you're familiar with Excel, you know, why does he think he needs to check out numbers? Maybe he thinks it's like because he's into accounting and he thinks there could be something interesting over there in numbers. But it shows the strange pull that applications that we think are boring, like, oh, numbers, well, whatever. Like, it's, you know, I don't have to buy office. It's nice to have a spreadsheet, but numbers is not setting the world on fire. Uh, but people who haven't used it are apparently interested in it, or at least one guy, intrigued by numbers. Uh, and I think uh, the end, uh, Chris Perillo asks his father what he thinks about the future. And he thinks the future is the iPad. He says, if, he, he, because the iPad is so small, he says, if I could get over this hump with the cloud, I could probably do everything on a tablet-type computer. I don't know what he's talking about with the hump with the cloud. I guess maybe it's, it's getting over the idea that everything you have isn't on your computer, but it's spread out everywhere. Uh, the only thing you'd need, because occasionally you're going to need to print something, so you, have, so you have to have access to a printer. So he says, basically, if I could just have a tablet and do everything on that, because he obviously loves his iPad, and then maybe have access to a printer because he's old and thinks you're going to have to print things on paper. And sadly, he's probably right. Uh, and he doesn't know about AirPrint or anything like that. That's what he thinks the future is. This guy, the the future, the computer non-technical nerd, is once again ahead of us all, saying he's already jumped ahead. He's like, I'm not interested in PCs or whatever. I could just do everything on a tablet. I would be happy. And I thought that was a pretty amazing conclusion because you expect him to say, I just want my Windows PC and I want right. it never to change. No, he's like, just this is all just a hassle and silly, and let's just do everything on tablets. He doesn't say iPad. He says on a tablet, right? On a tablet type computer. So that's an opportunity for Microsoft, I guess, if they can make a good Windows 8 tablet and make it familiar enough to get this guy so he doesn't go over to the Apple camp and you can get him off of his iPad, uh, that could be your future. Right. For, for Joe Perillo. So that was long, but I found this video fascinating. You're going to watch it and think it's really boring because it's a lot of time with just silently watching a guy stare at a screen. Uh, but I highly recommend it. Give it a try. Watch the video. Very good. And you can go to, uh, go to uh, again, no, uh, full confidence in sharing the URL, 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 59. You can see all the show notes and everything else that we talked about during this show. John has put together for you. You can follow John on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. It's that simple, USA, USA. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. Appreciate you listening. This is a good episode, John. 133 minutes. Just, so I'm telling you, it's always the ones where I think I don't have a lot of material. Always. Well, thank sorry you for, for this. Sorry for the people who wanted shorter shows. I'll try again. They can time. split it up. I don't understand people who complain about the short shows. You just you just split it up. You yeah, treat you treat get, it like two shows. You've got two shows today. You get behind on your podcasting. I understand. Oh, yeah, I, I am still trying to make the show shorter. I am just failing. I, I apologize. The, the trouble with your shows, and I think the reason why people complain, is that any any part of your show is equally as important as any other part. It's not like, oh, well, the, this is the boring part, and this was the interesting part. The whole thing's interesting, John. That's nice of you to say. That's true. Uh, another way to look at it is that the whole thing is boring, but to each his own. Okay, the, the entire show is equally boring, then. That would actually be true, just like any point in the universe is the center of the universe. I don't think that's actually true. I don't either. 
I've heard it. Yeah, you hear a lot of things. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good week, John. You too.